This episode of the Forge Podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of Theo Fattel, Edward Hart, Jamal Lobb, and David Morris, along with all of our other amazing Patreon supporters. If you would like to become part of the Forge community, you can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Thank you. And welcome to The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games, Genesis Foundry, and of course, the Genesis role-playing game. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and we have a phenomenal show for you this week. In Diecasting, we'll be taking a visit to the good doctor as we perform some exploratory surgery on the medicine skill. Uh, we'll open up the furnace to continue our series on archetype creation with a look at agility-based characters. In Breaking the Mold, we'll be talking to Brett Bowen of Studio 404 Games about the setting notebook, which is going to be very exciting. And of course, we'll be answering your games and rules questions in Under the Hammer. For now, however, let me introduce you to a guy who tells Santa who's going to be on the naughty list. It's GM Chris. Chris, how are you going? Ho, ho, ho. (laughs) You Uh... call it a ho, buddy. I'm sitting here like a bowl full of jelly. Uh, (laughs) My cheeks are rosy, but I think that's because I'm on my third beer. Um, Good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) uh, St. Arnold does a yield Christmas ale that's fantastic. Right. Yeah, if if you're – yeah, yeah. When when you're here for Gamer Nation Con Mm. in the spring, I'll I'll buy a case now because it's seasonal. I'll save it and we'll – will partake. Sounds good to me. <laughs> awesome. How you doing? I'm looking, How you doing, brother? Look, I've I've had a little bit of an injury, but uh, nothing exciting, and I've fully recovered from that. So uh, so that was good. But um, I live in the future. Uh, now, we are recording on Thursday from me, Thursday the 19th, and I've seen it. Now, when I say it, I'm obviously talking about The Rise of Skywalker, but um, we won't be spoiling anything. By the time that people have actually listened to the episode, they would have hopefully seen the uh, the movie uh, by then. Yeah, well, I can't wait to talk about that with a whole heap of people once they've seen it, because I don't want to spoil anything. So, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Um. I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to be seeing it Friday morning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just zip, zip, zip it, zip it. <laughs> there will be zip no it. spoilerage from me at all. So that's fine. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, I'm so committed to not even going in that direction. I think we should talk about what's new on the Foundry. A fantastic idea. Let's take a look in Stoking the Fire. Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. But first, Chris, would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio Podcast of the Week? Love to. 
So few gamer fandoms are as rabid and gibbering as those devoted to H.P. Lovecraft and his mythos. <laughs> and for gamers, this is perhaps best embodied by the Call of Cthulhu RPG. And for you dark and brooding gamers devoted to learning what cannot be unlearned, the Miskatonic University podcast is your premier source for all that will drive you mad. Uh, their recently released episode 188, uh, Audio Over Kingsport, uh, sees the host doing a deep dive into one of HPL's favorite mist shrouded locales, the township of Kingsport. A really great episode uh, for a great show that will expand your knowledge of the HPL mythos and help your Cthulhu and Cthulhu-inspired games. Uh, so go, check out Mup. It's a great show. Uh, you guys can find that and many more amazing gaming and geekery podcasts over at d20radio.com. It really is a fun show. I love it to, uh, to give that a listen. I don't play enough Cthulhu when I really need to. Uh, all right, Chris. So I think it's time to talk about some FFG news uh, because the fine folks at FFG have released version 1.1 of the Genesis Errata and FAQ. Uh, the new version answers some key frequently answered questions um, about uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk and the EPG itself, but it also includes updated errata for the core rulebook, Realms of Terranoth, and Shadow of the Beanstalk. But perhaps most importantly, since uh, the EPG introduced the concept of power levels for threats, and I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, on the show at a later stage, uh, this new version of the Errata and FAQ devotes three whole pages to providing those power levels for all of the existing published threats in prior books and other materials. And that includes the threats in the Core Rulebook, Realms of Terranoth, Shadow of the Meanstalk, and the Runners, Mercs, and Criminal Adversary decks, which is absolutely fantastic. Ooh, we've been waiting on that. Yeah, and guys, you can download this new version 1.1 of the Errata and FAQ at FantasyFlightGames.com. Indeed. And speaking of Fantasy Flight Games, the Expanded Player's Guide is now available as a PDF through DriveThruRPG. So if you are like many of the people who've contacted us uh, telling, the, telling us that the, the EPG is yet to arrive where they are and they've, uh, they're finding it difficult to, uh, to ask some questions uh, for uh, our upcoming show, go ahead, grab the PDF. It's only $14.95 uh, and it's well worth having in your ebook arsenal. There will certainly be a lot of people out there now with that release uh, very happy. And <laughs> uh, uh, in that regard, guys, don't forget to submit your questions about the Expanded Players Guide to Forge Genesis at d20radio.com. Um, go to the dedicated thread on either Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit, and also the topics we've posted on the Fantasy Flight Games community forums. Because as we'll talk about towards the end of the show, we have two very important development guests coming on to specifically dive into this book with us. Mm. Um, now, Huli, mm. encourage people to ask those questions mm -hmm. as if they needed more encouragement. <laughs> uh, we have a bit of an incentive that we are finally able to announce, are we not? Absolutely. Um, so for everyone who sends us a question about the Expanded Player's Guide or the GM screen, uh, for each question that you ask, you will go into the running to win a physical copy of the Explanted Players Guide and the GM screen. So that's both. Uh, so no matter where you are on the planet, if you win this competition, we will send it to you directly to your door or to your favorite post box or whatever it is. <laughs> 
So, so even if you're in Australia? Yes, even in your, if you're in Australia, we will send it to you. And even if you're in Europe or the UK? Anywhere on the planet, we will send it to you. My, my, my. Indeed. So we have, uh, we've also extended the deadline for all of you to send us those, uh, those questions, mainly because we've, there have been a lot of people, especially in Europe, we've got a lot of feedback from people that are saying that um, they still haven't had the EPG arrive uh, in their country. Um, and we want to give as many people the opportunity to be able to look through the book and start asking questions so that, uh, that we can you know, really take a really deep dive uh, into it during the show. So um, you now have until midnight in the US uh, on the 8th of January 2020. That's so weird to say 2020. That's weird. To be in the running to win these great prizes, as well as having the opportunity to have your questions about either the, as I said, the EPG or the GM screen answered by our special guests, Sam Gregor-Stewart, who is the RPG manager from FFG, and Keith Kappel, well-renowned uh, renowned, uh, freelancer right here on the show. That's pretty damn cool. <laughs> uh, Okay, so now that we got all that covered, mm. maybe we can get to the exciting new things available on the Foundry. I think that's a really good idea. So let's open the Foundry and see what's inside. So, Chris, what's up first? First up is an interesting little product out of Germany, uh, mm. low and dark fantasy careers uh, from Rattle St. Germain. Mm-hmm. Uh, this little supplement is a bit of a love letter to, to dark and low fantasy tropes. Um, offers over 30 new careers, such as the the archer, the jailer, and the grave robber, <laughs> um, and 11 entirely new talents in its slim nine pages. Mm. Uh, it, it's clearly designed to be a quick grab resource for those groups wanting some dark fantasy options, mm-hmm. and it's pay what you want. Mm. So check it out. Awesome. And don't forget uh, also, even though that it is pay what you want and you can easily put a zero in there and, and download the product, uh, if you really like what you see, please go back and update uh, the the amount that you're going to put in. Um, and, you know, even if it is only a dollar, it's something and it's going to encourage those people to create these additional products as well. Um, next, we have a one-page collection of some fairly interesting optional house rules for Genesis by Brash Fink, uh, who is uh, better known as James Brandt. Um, Brash Fink's wondrous one-sheet, uh, number one. Uh, for those community members who followed Brash Fink's frequent posts, let's face it, he's not really a fan of, of the Minion system. Um, and uh, he offers a series of minion options to, you know, change it up, including stage minions and dissimilar minions, uh, basically upcycling minions to, uh, to have a little bit of a different uh, look and feel. Uh, he also includes some notes and recommendations on creating custom careers uh, with a proposed step-by-step guide on how even a player can quickly create a custom career that suits the concept they're looking to play. Uh, this is a really interesting offering that may appeal to uh, to a lot of players and GMs, and considering that it is a pay what you want, there's no reason why you shouldn't check it out. Hilly, I do have to correct you. You said, you know, Brash Fink, better known as James Brandt. Mm. Actually, James Brandt, better known as Brash <laughs> That's uh, just how I know it. So, uh, so, right. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. Okay, so lastly, um, since our last show, um, Jason Duff 
uh, and of, of Earl of Fife Games, mm-hmm. uh, who brought us the, the Slaves to Fate supplement uh, earlier this year, returns with a new modular adventure for Terranoth called The Brand. Mm. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a short modular adventure designed to be played in one or two sessions. Um, the Brand tasks the party with the discovery and protection of a prophesied NPC. And just like Slaves of Fate, it includes some amazing artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, the supplement also introduces five all-new adversaries for your bestiary. Uh, it looks like a lot of fun, and it's only a buck ninety-nine. Very, very cool. Um, I, I love new adventures because that seems to be what a lot of people are asking for. Um, yeah. So uh, so it's good to see some, uh, some of those uh, popping up. Um, now, you can find all of those things that we've mentioned and many more Genesis RPG Foundry content over at drivethroughrpg.com by simply performing a search using the words Genesis Foundry. Or as soon as you log on, you can go down to the bottom uh, where it has the Fantasy Flight Games logo. Click on that and that will take you directly to uh, another option where you can just go to the Foundry if you're after another way to uh, to look for it. And while you guys are out there surfing the web, why not just jump over? And become a, a more concrete supporter of The Forge by joining our Patreon. Uh, for as little as $2 a month, you can get access to our Discord server. Um, higher tiers provide priority in your games and rules questions being asked on the show. And our largest tier not only provides you uh, with a special thank you at the top of the show, but also a special monthly get-together with either uh, Huli or myself to discuss your Foundry product or your campaign. Um, and all tiers will gain voting privileges in our annual Forge Awards, mm. where this show and our community recognizes the standouts of the year for Foundry products. And of course, all your donations really help the podcast directly so that we can continue to provide you with the excellent regular content that we strive to do. Indeed. Um, and, uh, you know, join the Forge community by becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Uh, and a big thank you to our existing patrons for your uh, existing support. It is well and truly appreciated. All right, Chris, I think it's time we crank into some good rules discussions. What do you think? I could not agree more. So let's jump right into some die casting. Die casting. The Forge podcast is all about bringing new creations to the table. And the Genesis RPG provides us all with a powerful set of tools to do so, specifically through skills and talents. The die-casting segment is about closely examining individual skills and talents and how they relate to the creations you craft. Last episode, we talked heavily about the often misunderstood and misused skill of negotiation. But tonight, we're going to tackle a skill that has relatively little confusion on exactly what it's used for, but could stand to have its usage, especially on the table, expanded just a bit. That's right. And tonight we're going to be discussing the medicine skill. Now, aside from being the de facto skill for doctors and healers in Genesis, with its obvious uses, it has sadly been myopically pigeonholed into just those uses by mostly players and GMs. The medicine skill is an essential one for any party to use regularly. But the sad truth is that due to the way that the healing mechanics work in Genesis, it rarely gets used in combat. Uh, as painkillers are, are popped regularly and, and long-term damage consequences are all too frequently hand-waved away during downtime or healed with, with money spent um, at a hospital or, or in case of a fantasy setting, a temple. 
Now, tonight we're going to be, uh, you know, getting into the medicine skill, but also how you can use that skill in both creative and, you know, rules as written and non-rules as written ways to give it more life in your games. So let's talk about the basics like we do. Let's start with this. What is the medicine skill? All right. So the medicine skill is it's a general skill found in the core rulebook and is noted as the skill to perform healing or any other medically related procedure. Um, the, it's an intellect-based skill and it's found on uh, the core rulebook or in the core rulebook, should I say, on page uh, 61. Now, it says that medicine gets your character and their friends back on their feet. Any attempt to heal an organic character requires medicine, as do other medical procedures such as elective surgery and installing cybernetics uh, and working with poisons, disease, parasites and drugs. Medicine is the skill used to deal with organic bodies, whether it be healing them or, or modifying them, uh, and in some cases harming them. The entry gives them some solid examples of when to use medicine, such as trying to heal wounds, counteracting or administering a poison, uh, curing a disease, creating a new pharmaceutical or recreational drug, trying to, to heal a critical injury, performing complex medical procedures such as surgery, cybernetic augmentation, uh, psychotherapy even. Uh, and what's important to remember is that it's not all about the healing itself. A good poisoner, for example, is going to have a good dye pool in medicine um, mm. to uh, to create the the better poison. Yeah. Uh, the book also gives us some some other great examples of what medicine is not used for. So, Chris, would you like to sort of discuss that? Yeah, yeah, and this really lends some credence to medicine's place. So, first and foremost. Um, it specifically calls out that you should not be using medicine if you're trying to research a disease or a poison. Basically, there's a fine line between practice and research, um, and, and medicine is the practical skill. If you were if you were examining a, a sick or a poisoned person directly, that would be medicine. But researching in a library or a lab would actually be the domain of a knowledge check. Mm. Um, and the book actually also continues with a couple other examples. Um, there's some pretty obvious ones. Uh, first and foremost, uh, trying to heal your own strain at the end of an encounter. Um, that's not covered by medicine. The rules clearly detail that if you're healing your own strain after an encounter, that's the domain of, of a cool or a discipline check. Mm. Um and the last example that, that they lay out for really when not to use medicine is also very interesting. And it comes back to poison. Mm. Um, if you try to administer poison through surreptitious means, like sleight of hand, maybe dropping it unnoticed into someone's drink or their food, or maybe surreptitiously injecting someone. Mm. Um, basically, if, if, if it's poison-related and it's poison administration that's occurring via subterfuge, that is the domain of skullduggery. Mm. Uh, now, now, truth be told, a good GM would probably allow medicine uh, for that, but skullduggery is the primary skill in that situation mm. um, with most likely a much reduced difficulty. Mm. Um, and all of this, Huli, both the recommended uses and non-uses for medicine, kind of leads us to discuss how the medicine skill is used mechanically in the game. Absolutely. So, firstly, let's look at the careers that actually have medicine on their skill lists. Um, in the core rulebook, we have uh, the healer, 
which is obvious, uh, the mad scientist, which is kind of cool, um, and the priest. Again, something a little bit uh, more sort of the, your generic healer. Um, yeah. uh, so, uh, Realms of Terranoth has the primalist, uh, which is quite interesting, uh, and, uh, and the scholar, uh, which again, for somebody who's sort of uh, more of a researcher, is going to be something that, that they may want to delve into um, to, to learn better. So, in actual fact, having uh, in Realms of Terranoth in particular, um, you could have a scholar and maybe a healer or some sort that would be working together. Uh, to uh, to come up with a solution to a medicinal problem, I guess. Um, and then the last two that we have are from Shadows of the Beanstalk. Uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk, I will get it right yet. Um, that is the academic and the tech. So again, we've sort of got more scholarly with the academic. And the tech, again, is that more sort of uh, the, the technician, the, the one who is going to be doing the research. Yeah. What what I find interesting about um, Realms of Terranoth, and this goes back to the, the setting itself, mm-hmm. um, going all the way back to Runebound, you would expect in a fantasy game, like we see in the core rulebook, that the the the, the acolyte, the, the priestly type mm. character um, in or career in, in Terranoth would have uh, medicine as a core skill, but they don't. Mm. Um, be, because that, that career and that, that trope in Terranoth is much more like a a warrior priest or a paladinly type character, right? Mm, yeah. um, and they really relegate healing and, and medical science to specifically the the, the scholar in civilized society, mm. and then of course the primalist, uh, which which makes sense. Yeah. So I, I thought that was an interesting. Interesting touch. Yeah. Now, Huli, mm. an, another thing that's very exciting is the sheer amount of species that offer you know <laughs> ranks in medicine skill. <laughs> Because um, the, the list is is staggering to behold. In fact, it's none. Um, <laughs> there are absolutely no species or archetypes in the game at this point that have medicine as getting an additional, you know, one rank or or having abilities with medicine. So uh, that's a that's an interesting omission. Um, so if anybody is developing stuff out there, by all means. <laughs> <laughs> Go with a species that is more medicine based. I mean, there are certainly ones that are out there in the in the the Star Wars RPG realm, but in specifically in Genesis, at this point, there are none. So yeah. So we've we've spoken about careers and species. So I guess the the last thing that we should talk about um, is talents. So there are only three published talents to this point that even remotely deal with the medicine skill. Uh, so from the core rulebook, we have the the tier one ranked surgeon talent. Uh, from Realms of Terranoth, there's the tier three pressure point talent. Uh, and then from Shadow of the Beanstalk, we have the tier two combat medicine uh, talent. So yeah, they're the only three, for now anyway, um, and we'll talk about that later on, uh, that uh, that cover medicine, um, the medicine skill. Yeah, but what about gear? Oh man, so yeah, if if there's a dearth of talents, um, <laughs> there's a plethora of gear <laughs> that there is. Um, so okay, we we got to talk about the painkiller, okay? Mm. Which you know, core rulebook page ninety four, um, reskinned in Realms of Tyranoth, page one of two as the health elixir, 
um, reskinned in Shadow of the Beanstalk for Android, uh, page 100 on Shadow of the Beanstalk as the slap patch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a piece of gear that doesn't actually require or utilize the medicine skill in any capacity, mm. but that's kind of the point of the piece of gear. <laughs> yep. But it heals you. Yep. And so we should mention it. Mm. So I mean, you got to you got to you got to talk about the painkiller because <laughs> um, it's it's so critical. Now another thing that's intriguing though is in that same vein um, is herbs of healing, mm. uh, which can be found uh, in the core rule book page one forty six, and then again in realms of Tyranoth, page one hundred one. Uh, clearly designed for a fantasy setting. Um, kind of intriguing these these sort of one time use items that when they're used with a medicine check, they add an automatic uh, extra success and an extra advantage to the results of the roll. Mm. Very, very handy if you're using the medicine skill for sure. Mm-hmm. And then also in the core rule book on page 162, we have the first aid kit. Now it says that it's only available for the weird war setting. Um, yeah. And it means that you can heal wounds and crits without penalty. Um, in other words, you know, you're having the proper tools for the job. Um, and then this is duplicated again in Realms of Terranoth on page 100, uh, where they explain the Apothecary's kit. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. So again, you kind of you you've got the same rule set, but it's just got a different um, look and feel based on the setting. Now they, they, you may wonder why that's only available for the Weird War setting, the first aid kit. That's because for for modern settings, mm-hmm. we actually have the portable med kit from the core rulebook, yep. uh, page 169, which does what the first aid kit does, and. <laughs> because it's a little better, because we're a little further in the timeline for a modern setting. Um, using it with a medi- <clears throat> with a medicine check obviously counts as having the right tools for the job, so you can do the check without penalties. But it also provides a automatic advantage to medicine skill check results. Mm. Um, and that's duplicated as the emergency med kit um, uh, in uh, Android uh, in, in Shadow of the Beanstalk, page 99. Mm. Now, the portable clinic kit is quite interesting. Now, it's on um, the uh, page 99 of Shadow of the Beanstalk, um, and uh, it's kind of like a doc's bag, uh, and it lets one use of the medicine to heal without penalty, uh, so having the proper tools for the job, and it also heals one extra wound and one extra strain when it's used on checks to heal, which is really kind of cool. It's almost like as we go through the timeline, it's like, okay, you've got the first aid kit, which is, you know, your your World War II era. Yeah. You got the portable med kit slash emergency med kit, you know, <clears throat> for, you know, modern and near future. And then you've got the cyberpunk future, <laughs> the portable clinic kit. They, and they each, they each serve as the right tool for the right job, but mm. they get increasingly better in terms of their additional benefit. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. That's very, very cool. Um, we then have, and this is kind of funny, but uh, we then have the happy patch, um, which is, um, uh, you know, it's no surprise that it's from Shadow of the Beanstalk. It's on page 99. Um, and this one isn't directly medicine related, but it is a drug with recovery properties. And it's worth mentioning, um, it, it, it heals three strain, which is something which is really helpful, especially if you're, you know, importing some of this across to a Shadowrun type game, especially with uh, with people that are using spells um, that, uh, you know, they might need that, that quick strain recovery. Um, so, yeah, so it heals three strain, uh, but it leaves you disorientated, not so good for spellcasters, uh, until the end of the encounter. 
Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it is it is a recreational drug of sorts. But, uh, yeah, not the best of thing to have an extra setback die throwing around again. Yeah, but it's small potatoes compared to its big brother. Um, <laughs> yes. uh, also, page 99 is Shadow of the Beanstalk, mm. which is simply called The Stem. Mm. Happy Patch's big brother. It When you take it, it instantly heals all your strength. Mm. Just boom. Yep. You're done. Mm. But the side effect is at the end of the encounter. Yep. When you would normally roll to recover strain, yep. you don't make that roll. Instead, you immediately suffer 10 strain. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> it, it very well could mean so it can save your butt in an encounter, but it yeah. might mean you pass out when everything's done. I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, or you're or you're just jacked for the rest of the day. <laughs> and I tell you what, if you're a GM and you aren't using the spares to have someone uh, get suddenly addicted to stim, you might be doing stuff wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So we've talked about um, all of the different pieces of gear, and as as you said, Chris, there is a lot of it, uh, which is out there, which is really kind of cool. Um, but let's talk about the mechanical effects of the medicine skill. You know, we know what the medicine skill does, but mechanically it obviously has certain uh, certain effects. Now, the medicine skill primary use is obviously to heal. This is covered in the section at the very end of combat called healing and recovery, and it's on page 115 of the core rules. And it's a fairly small section. In in fact, it's only it's probably even less than a page. It does go across two pages, but it, it's it's probably less than a page. But it clearly shows that the medicine skill is used in one of two ways: short term healing and healing critical injuries. Yeah, short term healing is mm. is where we start. Yeah, um, and with short term healing, very simply, you make a medicine check with a difficulty based on how wounded the patient is, okay, mm -hmm. um, in order to heal them. Now, yep. your difficulty on this, again, depends on how wounded they are. Um, if they're at less than half their wound threshold, that's an easy check. If they're more than half their wound threshold, that's an average check. If they're over their wound threshold, that's actually a hard check. Mm -hmm. um, for every success that you roll, the target regains one wound. And for every advantage uh, you roll, the target recovers one strain. Mm -hmm. The the big limitation here is that that check can only be performed once per encounter. Hmm. Now, this is an interesting point because a GM will need to rule what is an encounter. You know, for example, traveling between two places like Huli, is that an encounter? Well, that's, that's exactly right. And I mean, this is something that really needs to be determined um, either at the time with the consent of everybody at the table or it needs to be done way back when they run session zero that they need to work out what is the definition of an encounter. For my games, um, I normally have it in scenes. So if they are traveling between two places, that's a scene. Um, it's, a, it's a scene that wouldn't appear on film or it may in sort of a bit of a, a montage sort of sequence of, of showing the movement and what sort of countryside they're moving through. But that would be a single encounter. Um, so if you're traveling between two places, yes, you can heal um, your uh, your friend or, or other players with with that other PC, should I say, uh, with that uh, with that medicine check. Um, but obviously, take into consideration that you are you may be in a moving vehicle, you may be in a cart, you may be surrounded by other people that you don't want other people 
to see that you're injured. So don't forget some setback and maybe increasing difficulty uh, to uh, to keep that undercover and things like that. The the only limitation, um, and this applies to healing any injuries uh, that uh, that if, that you might be performing uh, on yourself, is that you have to increase the difficulty by two. So even if you are sort of moving between places or something like that, uh, that you are running setback. Just remember, if you're doing it, you know, in the the back of a, a wagon that you've managed to stow away on, and you're having to heal yourself that's going to be increased by two. And the ramifications of that by the way that the system works is that chances are you're probably going to get more threat. And that can mean you could be passing out. So from a, a story perspective, you know, it, it's the the predator who's jabbed himself with, um, with a, a healing something um, and suddenly screaming out in pain. Well, that would sort of represent the strain if... He was, uh, if some threat were rolled, for example. You were literally reading my mind. I was going <laughs> to bring this example up of, of the movie Predator 2 with Danny Glover, where, you know, there's a point where, where like, when they're fighting on a rooftop, mm. like, Danny cuts off the Predator's hand. He cuts off his forearm, right? Yep, yep. And this creature crawls into a, a residential bathroom and literally performs two medicine checks on itself yeah um the first and you, you see it it plays out as a scene mm. you know a length scene actually mm. um where where the creature literally rolls a check to heal itself and it's injecting itself and doing other stuff and then it rolls a check to heal a critical injury that it mm. had clearly suffered mm-hmm. um and and that is the the second part of it you know we talked about short-term healing then there's healing critical injuries yeah um, the, the, the critical injury chart has a column uh, which is called severity, okay? And, and that severity equates to a particular difficulty to heal that particular critical injury. Mm. Um, so obviously if you want to attempt to heal it or, or at the very least remove the effects of it, um, it's going to require a medicine check at that difficulty. The only limitation here, again, uh, is, is as you said, the, there's the increased difficulty by two if you're performing it on yourself. But mm. also when it comes to crits, mm. a character can only heal – once per week per critical injury in this fashion. Mm. Which is a big limitation. It can become a little bit difficult if you're not really maintaining sort of time uh, as such. You know, if you're doing between sessions that there may be a break, um, that may be an indicator as to, you know, your players, how long are you waiting? Well, we're going to wait until the critical injuries are performed, uh, until everybody's back on their feet. Okay, let's start making some checks. And you can find that suddenly they've gone to ground for a month. Well, what's happened in that month? Um, And get the players to sort of explain what's actually gone on during that period. Or if they just go, look, we're only going to stay alive for two weeks and then we're going to try to move on because we don't want to be, we don't want to be captured. So you can, you know, you can make those checks and they heal what they can heal. Um, and don't forget sort of your environment as well, especially if you've got critical injuries such as arms being lipped off or, or whatever else, that, uh, you know, if you're in an underground sort of area, whether it be the sewers, whether it be, you know, an abandoned warehouse, none of that is a really sterile place. So, you know, you, that's the sort of thing that you can be looking at additional setback die, uh, as well as um, total upgrades, automatic upgrades without um, spending a, a story point. 
uh, because infection, if that gets in, that can make things even worse for the characters. Well, you know, as you're talking about that, mm. that that leads to an interesting aspect, which is kind of underexplored in the overall mechanics for medicine. Mm. And that is advantage, triumph, threat and despair. Mm. I mean, talk to me about that, because there's a lot of uh, potential there to do some very interesting things. Yeah. So. Advantage is, is pretty much covered, especially when you're making a medicine check to heal some wounds. You know, advantage is spent to, well, I'll take a step back. Successes determine uh, for every uncancelled success, you get one wound back. But for every uncancelled advantage, that is, you recover a point of strain as well. Um, but as you say, the remaining symbols are really lacking in explanation. Um, we really have to sort of go across um, to Star Wars or start using our imagination a little bit more. Uh, and I know that in my games that triumphs come up all the time when we're talking about medicine checks. And I know that there was a, a recent question about this on Reddit as well, uh, where they started asking about well, what actually happens with a triumph when you're making this medicine check. Sometimes, again, it goes down to session zero is really uh, zeroing in on what it is that these particular checks make. It can be that you double the amount of wounds that you heal. It can be a set number of wounds that you heal. It can be used in uh, things like that. If you have a critical injury and you roll a triumph, the next critical injury, your skill is upgraded once. So, you know, that's just using the standard rules that, that we see in um, spending advantages and, and triumphs and threats and spares. So if, if you really want to make it a hard and fast rule, especially with triumphs, look at a set number of, of wounds that it heals additionally. And you might be looking at something anywhere between three and five, for example. Uh, for threat, uh, we start looking at, you know, it takes longer to perform the, the surgery or to perform the, the, the medicine check. Perhaps that it, um, you know, it doesn't happen instantaneously. So you might have to wait a little bit longer in the dungeon that uh, before you proceed, which might mean that the the bad guys end up, um, you know, being able to prepare things better for for the ambush or set an ambush or something like that. And then, of course, there's despair. Now, despair is the realm of you know a terrible accident where perhaps a further critical injury is is caused. Maybe it's not something you know worse, or perhaps it is, depending on how many despairs that you're you're uh, you're rolling. It can also mean that there's perhaps an infection that's got in, um, and it's going to require an additional problem to deal with that you may need to be using other skills, such as, as you mentioned earlier, Chris, you might be needing to use some knowledge skills as well. Could you think of anything else? No, you really covered it quite well. Um, honestly, the the level of creativity needed for advantage, you know, and triumph and threat and despair can really do a lot of fun things. Yeah. Um, the most fun I've ever had with threat and despair was actually when I had a group that was trying to heal disease. Mm. Um, um, because they ended up maybe curing somebody, but then catching it themselves yeah. or inadvertently spreading it, which is really nasty. Mm. Um, the other fun thing about trying to cure poison is that you might poison yourself by accident. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> same, same goes for administration as well. <laughs> very, very cool. 
So that's all of the core rules. Um, you know, rules is written as to how to use medicine skill. But as we like to do, we like to look at the non-standard and non-raw ways that you can use medicine. So, Chris, what are some additional ways that uh, that we can use medicine? Well, I mean, there's a lot of very concrete uses for it uh, that we've mm. kind of outlined. But as far as those non-standard or maybe even non-raw, the one that springs out to me the most is forensics. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's, I think it's actually somewhat raw, kind of. Yep. Um, but, you know, for, for games that are focused on investigation and, and crime mm. um, or even the occasional crime or investigation-focused session in a larger campaign, mm. um, medicine can be used as a forensic skill. Yeah. Um, specifically, though, it, it should be limited to examining bodies or remains of organic bodies for clues, you know, cause of death, time of death, mm. um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's, it's the skill. Um, to put it another way, a, a coroner or a medical examiner is going to be using the same skill to examine or analyze a body that a doctor would be using to treat the body if it were still alive. Mm. So it's it's the same training that those individuals have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so the same skill should be utilized. Yeah. I mean, another thing as well, if we start looking at uh, the fear mechanics, uh, the uh, things to, to if you, you know, you went down the path of actually having critical injuries for, um, you know, whether they be mental health injuries, uh, that medicine, as it says in the description, is for things like um, psychology as well. So, you know, anything in that um, medical field, which includes, you know, your specialists, uh, your ER doctors, as well as your psychologists and psychiatrists as well. So, you know, that that could also be used there to uh, to be healing people over time with some of their phobias and, and things like that. Now, talking about phobias and, uh, and mental health issues caused specifically by fear and fear effects, I did some further research into the horror tone where the rules for fear exist in the rules. Um, now, on page 244, there is a fantastic table, uh, which is table 3.4-2, traumas and their effects. Now, on that table, it lists the type of trauma, what the effects of that trauma are, and the severity. Now, it's not very clear, but this to me looks like a critical injury table for mental trauma. So, basically, when you roll a despair or five threat on a fear check... You can take a critical injury, um, but in uh, for mental trauma instead. So um, when that occurs, you you roll on the critical injury table as normal, find the severity, then look at this table with the corresponding severity, and this is what happens to them. And what it's also not very clear on is how to cure these sorts of injuries. Um, so my suggestion is to use the medicine skill. Now, no, no surprises there because that's what we're talking about. Now, as Chris or I mentioned before, I can't remember which one of it was, but uh, medicine covers all aspects of the medical profession, including you know psychology and psychiatry. So using that connection, uh, medicine seems the best skill that's going to be the most appropriate to be dealing with this sort of an injury. Perhaps, uh, you know, I'd even go so far as to say that you could even use it, um, use a medicine skill, but use it with, uh, with presence instead. Um, if you have a horror setting, um, you may even consider 
uh, creating a new presence based skill called psychology, um, if it's coming up a lot. Uh, but the catch-all in this sort of circumstance is uh, is the medicine skill. Now, let's talk about um, the, the hows of the situation. So, the difficulty to cure the trauma is going to be based on the severity as you would a, a normal critical injury. And uh, the question, though, is how long is that going to take? Now, healing from normal wounds um, is is something that it takes a week to to recover from a, a, a critical injury. And I'm not sure whether that's realistic or not, but that's what the rules have said. Um, I tend to take a harder approach when it comes to uh, to mental health trauma um, because just just due to the nature of it, it, it takes time to process that. Uh, so, you know, our suggestion is, is about a month, perhaps more, um, of intensive therapy. You may even consider one month per level of severity if you want to go that far. Without firm rules, though, um, uh, you know, it's really up to the GM and how they want to handle it. Uh, if you want to take it, uh, a, a look at some additional rules with regards to, uh, to fear, uh, you can go and grab um, Scott Zumwalt's uh, expanded fear guidelines, um, which goes through some of this stuff, especially focusing, obviously, on fear. And it's available on Foundry, so go and take a look at that. Now, psychology is something that um, you can, you can't really, there's no tools that you can use other than, um, you know, experience and training. And that's something that, that we see a lot of doctors and uh, mental health professionals that doctors in particular, even though that they haven't focused on psychiatry, they still have to go and do a, a stint in a mental health ward so that they can have a wide range of skills. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously when it comes to these sorts of checks, it's probably best that you look at the background of the character. So where is it that they've come from? Um, have they come from a, a, a being a doctor or is it something else entirely? Are they, are they just, um, they're, they're very focused on combat, um, and they're a soldier or something like that. And as a result, they've had a lot, little bit of experience in, in tending to wounds and things like that. So, you know, look at the look at the characters and their background story. And if uh, if they don't really have anything that sort of fits that psychology bill, uh, you might want to look at um, giving them setback diet to their medicine check when trying to heal these sorts of injuries. I personally think the best way to deal with this, though, is to use the medicine skill, but um, use the uh, your presence as the attribute. Mm-hmm. That would be my suggestion. Another thing that I would probably suggest as well is, and this is a realm of one of those, if you were doing like a crime scene investigation, as you say, Chris, that uh, you have somebody who's walked into a crime scene. Uh, you know, you might be using vigilance, you might be using perception, but you also might be using medicine for things like blood splatter patterns and things like that. Um, yes. It, uh, it may be a higher difficulty, but certainly if you're looking at, well, what would the distance covered by uh, blood splatter from uh, carotid artery, what would, how far would that go? Uh, and if you've got a player explaining that, I'd certainly be allowing them to, to use medicine, most certainly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, mm. it's, it's great use. Mm. 
Now, of course, when it comes to true non-raw uses for medicine, <laughs> of course, the easiest non-raw use of the medicine skill is, once again, custom talents. <laughs> um, now, as we mentioned earlier, guys, there are only three talents that are spread across three completely separate books mm. that deal with the medicine skill or relate to it in some way. Mm. So, so as we do, we have uh, masterminded four new talents um, that we have created for you to get on the table and play test uh, to really give some additional punch, power, and versatility to those anatomical eggheads in your party. <laughs> and I think this is some sort of record for us as far as designing talents. But but look, when we get onto a roll, you know, we just keep going. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's look at the first one. And it's a tier two talent and it's called Invigorating Painkiller. Now, its activation is passive, um, and it's a non-ranked talent. When your character administers a painkiller in addition to the normal effects of the painkiller, the target also recovers a number of strain. Uh, That number is equal to your character's ranks in the medicine skill. Now, this talent uh, was really kind of designed to provide a powerful yet passive bonus uh, for high medicine characters. Uh, without having them, you know, need to, to make a roll. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's that's kind of using the medicine skill in a sort of a, a, a kind of backdoor way, but it's something yeah. that, that is missing, and, and it's something that, that a lot of people also forget, oh, I've found out in, in games that I've run, is that advantage that gives them that extra strain. So, um, you know, if they're, uh, and especially people who, are, who want to recover strain, Again, I'll go back to spell users. That uh, you know, that there's no quick way that you can slap on a a strain recovery patch without it being you know a recreational drug, as we mentioned before. So uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I like I like the passive use of of medicine in that regard. Mm. And again, even even with spending advantage to recover strain, people don't always do it. They want they want to do other things or if they're really strain suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the common complaints, especially that younger or newer players to the system will give is it's like, you know, okay, you you, you took this painkiller, you've healed five wounds. Okay, but what about my strain? Ah, you got to wait on that. <laughs> so this, this is a, a nice way to reward a medicine-focused character. It's like, no, mm-hmm. you don't administer the, the painkiller. Let me administer it, mm-hmm. okay? Yep. And, oh, and oh, by the way, you all, you, you've healed your five wounds and also two or maybe three strain, depending <laughs> on my ranks. Indeed. So I think I think that's a, a nice, nice bonus. Yeah, absolutely. And what's the next one? Oh, surgical strike. <laughs> um, uh, there's similar talents um, in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen one in Genesis yet, so I just had to make one. Yeah. Um, so surgical strike is a tier two, another tier two. Mm-hmm. Um, at uh, activation, active, incidental, non-ranked. Before your character makes a brawl or melee light check, you may spend a story point as an incidental to grant the attack the vicious quality equal to your ranks in medicine. (laughs) If the attack already has the vicious quality, that quality is increased by your ranks in medicine. Ouch. (laughs) Literally, ouch. I mean, I mean, th- this has the potential to give vicious five, which is a plus fifty to a crit roll, mm. um, for a really, you know, skill 
skillful um, medic. Mm. Um, where, where, you know, with that anatomical knowledge and biological knowledge they have, they mm. know exactly how to really jack you up. Mm. Uh, so I, I uh, yeah, it seemed like a lot of fun. Um, I think I think it's uh, reasonably well costed at tier two. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing too is it also has an inherent XP cost because its capability is limited by the ranks that you have in medicine. Yeah, absolutely. So. And also, you know, let's not forget the uh, the story point. And you know, if if you're doing this properly, um, most people have already spent that story point uh, to to upgrade the check if they really want to, you know, kill the bad guy. Uh, so um, you know, you can only spend one story point in the round. So um, you know. That's that you've got to be careful. You, if you've got the talent, you know, make the decision whether uh, you know you use the story point before or after. So, uh, so yeah, interesting, yeah. very cool. So our third one, it's only a flesh wound. Um, I love Monty Python, and <laughs> it's a tier four talent. Now this one's quite interesting. So you know, let us know what you think. Um, its activation is active, incidental, out of turn, and it's a non-ranked talent. Once per session, when a character within short range suffers a critical injury, your character may attempt a daunting, that's huge, daunting medicine check. Uh, If successful, your character selects the critical injury suffered in lieu of the rolled result, which is really, really handy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is a high-tier, powerful ability designed to be a a great secondary use for medicine. Uh, It doesn't have a story point cost due to it uh, it being situational, um, but, um, you know, and it's difficult difficult to pull off, Um, but it is limited to once per session. So, you know, that's the the balancing factor that we've we've thrown in with that. So, uh, so yeah. Mm And our last uh, proposed talent for you all um, is, is um, uh, kind of, it's only a flesh wound's big brother. Um, <laughs> we're calling it Crash Cart. Um, this is a tier five talent, Huli. Mm. Um, activation, active, action. Mm. Um, it is obviously non-ranked. <clears throat> Once per session, your character can spend a story point to attempt a formidable, that's five purple dice, <laughs> medicine check targeting an engaged character who has died within the last round. Mm. If successful, the target character is saved, returning to life at one wound above their wound threshold. Wow. S- super high tier, super costly. Mm. You know, obviously, story point and just the the, the the redonkulous difficulty it takes to pull it off. Mm. Um, and it can only be done once in a session. Yep. Um, super situational. Um, so, yeah, very, very, very intriguing. But this is that this is that true paragon surgeon capability. Yeah. If you can get to them within a round of their death, mm. and you can spend a story point, and you can pull five purple medicine check <laughs> out of your keys. <laughs> you can keep someone alive still unconscious but alive interesting i like that talent um and it is super super um you know costly uh especially at a tier five but um you know 
for that one time that you really need to make one of your friends really well again <laughs> after they pass on, uh, I think that, uh, you know, it, it's certainly one that uh, worthy of taking. So, yeah. <laughs> Mm, but look, let us know, because we're going to make these available, aren't we, Chris? Oh, we are. And, of course, you guys can download these talents in a beautiful PDF-ified version um, directly from our <laughs> podcast website mm-hmm. um, at forgegenesis.com, um, where you can go to the resources section and find all the cool uh, talents and content that we we create and release that to you on the show. We want to know what you guys think of it. Um, let us know and get it on your table. Play test it. Uh, we'd love to see this this kind of stuff in use. Absolutely. And uh, as uh, Chris said in a previous episode, you know we make these stuff up on without play testing them at all. Uh, I mean, we've got a, a certain level of experience when it comes to to designing these things. But ultimately, when it comes to the cost of stuff, um, you know, we may say tier two, tier two. But when you start playing it at the table, you may decide, wow, it's it's actually really quite powerful. And, you know, let us know what those reasons are, uh, and then we can modify those in the document as well. So um, for uh, for people to use. So, yeah. We had we had we had a listener that was it was a talent a few episodes back that we had come up with. He said, you know, I think that's undercosted, and I was like, well, dude, get it on the table, play test. He's like, okay, okay, well, I'll I'll let you know, but you know, you might have to do an errata. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I literally said, if you're play testing this stuff and you're coming back to us with those kinds of recommendations, and we have to do an errata, hmm. that will be the happiest moment of my life. Yeah. Uh, that would nothing would make me happier. So Absolutely. yeah, we hope you guys enjoy these. But, yeah, get them out there, play test them. Um, we think they're good, but we want you to try them out. Mm. Um, all right, Huli, I think it's time uh, to pump the bellows and heat things up and open up the furnace a little bit and maybe maybe let some heat into this uh, wintry uh, uh, blizzard that's encompassing uh, the U.S. at the moment. Because <laughs> it's certainly not happening here. <laughs> it's quite the opposite. <laughs> the Furnace. And welcome to The Furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role-playing game. Now tonight we're going to continue our segment series on the ins and outs of archetype and species creation, which based on the feedback you guys seem to really, really love, which is great. Uh, So when it comes to creating your own setting or world in Genesis or even expanding upon an existing one, Archetypes and species can be some of the most critical components for players. Indeed. Well-crafted and thematic archetypes and species go a long way to imparting the tone and feeling of your game, but the balance of your game can be seriously impacted if those species aren't built in the proper way. Now, back in episode four, we began the first in this series um, on archetype and species creation, and in that episode, we focused on the overall rules for species crafting, but then honed into serious details on species archetypes with a high bronze score. In episode seven, we continued with a look at high willpower species and archetypes, and back in episode nine, we worked with you on crafting those cunning-focused species. Yes, and as we say, we strongly recommend that you give a re-listen to episode four, if you didn't need a reminder anyway. Uh, Because in that episode, we covered the basics of archetype and species creation with rules and best practices that we'll be referencing tonight. Now, this episode sees a return to the more physically focused species and archetypes. In episode four, we covered the brawn attribute. uh, But this episode, 
we're going to be talking about those with a high agility attribute. Fast and ever in motion. High agility species represent some common and classic archetype concepts, which we're about to break down, um, while including the best practices to develop your very own species and archetype abilities for those concepts. Mm. So to start things off, again, you said it a minute ago, Huli, but boilerplate, guys, again, as we do, we're not going to be discussing the core rules of creating a species tonight, the six parts of a species, XP costing when changing those parts, all of that. Again, please go listen to episode four. We covered all in the first half of the furnace segment. There's no use repeating it, and we're just going to proceed assuming that you all know what we're talking about. <laughs> Tonight, you're just going to be applying those rules to a new archetype and species focus. So l- let's talk about agility-focused species and archetypes and, 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 and really what that embodies, what it means. Hmm. So we really kind of have um, sort of three main sort of core concepts, I guess, when it comes to agility. Um, and the, these concepts really focus on, on what agility embodies. So we've got the sharpshooter, um, and they're really going to be sort of focusing on coordination, uh, ranged, and stealth. You know, they're ranged combatants, they're snipers and scouts. We've then got the transporter. Um, which is an amazing film, by the way, all of them. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so we've got, uh, they focus on driving, piloting, riding, um, and gunnery. Uh, because we have to look at uh, the fantasy settings as well. So, you know, the, mm-hmm. the riding is certainly something that, that comes into play. Um, and, uh, and as I said, gunnery, these are the pilots. It's the cavalry. It's the, the getaway drivers. Uh, that's, uh, they're using their agility to be able to drive the vehicles or, um, or, the, or the animals that they're, they're using to go from point A to point B or to escape the bad guys or to chase the bad guys, depending on which way you're looking at it. Um, so, uh, so that's the transporter. And lastly, we have the ghost. So the ghost is, uh, they're focusing on stealth and coordination. Uh, these are going to be your cat burglars, your spies, your rogues, um, and your snakes. So they're the ones that are going to be using those, uh, those skills that are agility-based to be able to get into the areas um, without being seen um, and, uh, you know, to find the item that they've been sent in to, uh, to grab and get out again, again, without being seen. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting when we look at, at- – you know whether it's fantasy or sci-fi or anything else, the, the these these three focuses are commonly repeated in species unique to those settings. You know, especially uh, you know, and, and some are more prominent than others. You know, mm-hmm. when I think of the transporter, that that's a very very common species trope in science fiction and space opera. The idea of the 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 the, the spacefaring species. You know, <laughs> they were they were the first in the galaxy to explore. You know, um, very very common, and then. Whether it's fantasy or or science fiction, when you get into species, the idea of the ghost or that that species focused on on stealth and darkness. Maybe they, they live in a dark planet, you know, and that's the world they come from. Um, it makes me think of the last species that I did uh, when we talked about cunning focused characters. You know, the the shadowkin. Mm. Um, very much can fall into that category as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And look, with with the addition of, of some talents, and I'll know we'll talk about this later on, but. Um, with with some of the talents like finesse, for example, you can turn a 
uh, a, a brawling or a melee-focused character into sort of the sharpshooter, but make it more sort of um, one-on-one combat um, just by using that that one talent. So, um, you know, don't don't think that when we're talking about sharpshooter that we're only talking about that sort of uh, just people who can shoot. Um, with the, the application of the right talents, you can turn some of those things um, into more agility-focused characters. But for the purpose of this exercise, we're just going to focus on straight out of the box, uh, what you can do with your species. So now let's talk about some of the issues that we have to look at when we're talking about building these species in the first place. So specifically, um, what is going to be your dump stat? Now, again, uh, look, there have been a couple of these that, that we've gone through where there's no real obvious choice. Um, and again, it's going to be dependent on what you focus uh, that, that you're going for for this particular species. Um, so for, for each focus, let, let's talk about dump stat possibilities and, and those that you should avoid dumping into with those particular um, three focuses that we've talked about. So <clears throat> dump and keep. Um, let's start with the top of the list of the three focuses. Mm-hmm. Um, for the, let's start with the sharp, sharp the sharpshooter. Okay, the, that that ranged combatant. Um, for your dump stats, you really want to consider uh, a couple obvious choices. Brawn, brawn is an obvious choice here. Um, sharpshooters aren't particularly known for melee combat effectiveness or athletic ability. Mm-hmm. I mean, outside of coordination. Yep. Um, Another potential option for dumping is intellect, um, and, and primarily because there's very few intellect-based skills that are crucial to this focus of the sharpshooter. Um, so that, that's another potentially strong choice as well. Now, as for what you should keep, meaning the skill, you, the, the, the characteristic you should never dump with the sharpshooter focus, um, that should be cunning. Cunning should be kept high, always at a two, maybe even higher, depending on how you decide to build it. Um, mostly because for that particular focus of sharpshooter, survival and perception are very essential. Mm. Um, so you want to, you know, you don't want to hinder those options too much, or you know, the the, the species is kind of working against itself at that yeah, point. Absolutely. And then we get on to the transporter. So for for this one, the dump stat should be um, what we think is probably the most appropriate is brawn. Um, it really is the choice to dump, in our opinion. It, it it will have little to no bearing on on the target skill layout for when you're using vehicles. Um, you know, the only time that you would probably ever use it is that um, for whatever reason you have to change a tire. Um, that's blown and you don't have um, some sort of a jack or something like that. You might be using brawn then, but realistically, or, or I guess if you had a body that you need to take between one place to the other, you know, you might be using brawn to lift it into the into the trunk. But other mm-hmm. than that, brawn is something that you won't be using. The the skill that, or sorry, the, the attribute that we suggest that you keep though is intellect because it's strongly associated with this with this concept uh not the least of which is because you know astrocartography mechanics um for for people who are you know fixing their cars on the side of the road um when you're piloting a spaceship astrocartography becomes important um and also when it comes to you know using horses uh knowledge of geography 
is going to be important as well. So, you know, definitely don't turn intellect into your dump stat. Correct. And lastly, when we consider the ghost, uh, that last focus concept, um, when you think about your dump stat, uh, presence, the presence characteristic is the most obvious choice. Um, the ghost focus isn't really known for social interaction. That's not really their thing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they're often characterized by antisocial behavior. <laughs> uh, so, so presence is a, is a, is a shoe in for your dump stat, uh, for if, if you want to focus on that ghost concept for your agility mm-hmm. species. Yeah. Um, now having said that when it comes to what you should not dump, what you should keep brawn, mm. brawn should, avoided for the dump mostly because you know not every setting is going to utilize the finesse talent um and honestly you should never build a species concept around a talent anyway kind of as huli alluded to before and ghost archetypes are often associated and with melee combat Mm. um therefore you're going to want to keep that brawn from being too hindered i mean these are the knives in the dark that are going to backstab you as they come up to you Mm. Uh, the other uh, characteristic that you really want to keep fairly high and not dump is cunning, um, mostly because when you talk about the ghost, who's going to be this really stealthy kind of character, skullduggery is another very common skill for that focus archetype. Mm. You've also got streetwise as well, um, which yeah. is uh, is another point too. And just also to touch on brawn, because you're going to be getting into um, you know different places in different sort of ways, as we you know spoke about in uh, a few episodes ago, coordination athletics can be used sort of together. Um, and there are going to be certain situations where you need to be climbing a rope. Well, that's going to be athletics so again brawn is under athletics um or sorry athletics uh, uses brawn so you that's another reason to uh, to definitely keep those two um it is uh, as non-dump stats um so that's really looking at, at those three so uh, and what to keep and, and what to dump so let's now look at uh, the skill usage and um, you know special ability free ranks that uh, that you give characters uh, or give uh, to uh, to species. Now, where do we give the free skill rank? Is the question. So, you know, we've got agility based skills. So we've got coordination, driving, piloting, riding, stealth, gunnery, uh, and ranged, both heavy and light. So a free rank in any of those skills should cost a little bit more of the uh, the overall XP hit. But that's the ones that you're going to be potentially focusing on that could make your species very, very focused in a particular area. And if you look at those three that we've mentioned, um, you know, the, the, the sharpshooter, the transporter and the ghost, there are specific skills that they are using. So if your species is specialized in that sort of field, look at those agility-based skills. So what about non-based agility-based skills, Chris? Well, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you know, if you want to really avoid that extra XP hit, you're going to want to go with a non-agility or non-synergistic skill um, that's still going to provide a good boon to the concept overall for the species the, those mm. those cheap choices and again they're going to depend on the theme or focus so mm. we'll return to our three there's some pretty obvious choices here um we've mentioned some of them <laughs> uh when it when it comes to the sharpshooter 
uh, perception or survival, right? Mm-hmm. They're not agility based, but they're both, uh, you know, really excellent choices to support that focus for, for a particular concept. Mm-hmm. Um, for the transporter, uh, mechanics uh, is a good one, as is in a similar vein, uh, knowledge geography or or a similar knowledge skill. You know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe you know astrocartography if you're in that appropriate setting. Yeah. Um, also, maybe because it, I have watched too many Jason Statham Jason Statham <laughs> movies, um, uh, Brawl is a great thematic choice for a transporter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and quite frankly, even better if they have a low brawn characteristic. Because it can really uh, shore that up and give, give them a little, a little, a little breath to their bite, basically. <laughs> um, looking at the ghost, um, the obvious options there, kind of as we mentioned, are our skullduggery or or melee. Now, if your setting does break out melee into light and heavy, it should definitely be the one-handed melee light. Um, but despite all that, Huli, I believe there is one other skill choice uh, that we can always highly recommend for that 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 free rank that would apply to all three of these concepts equally well and be very thematic. Absolutely. So uh, the one of the concepts, obviously, with all three, the the common denominator, I guess, is that there is a certain level of combat or chases or something like that. So when you start looking at that. Either cool or vigilance is going to be a really good choice, but vigilance is what we would recommend. Um, it's it's a valid non-agility bonus skill rank option for, for any of the focus types, and it's quite thematic, representing fast reaction times, which uh, is sort of what I was getting at before. So, yeah, vigilance is something which is going to be of benefit to any of these, uh, these focus types. Mm-hmm. Now, all that leads us into, again, the, the, the last thing you really want to consider when you're creating a species or archetype, and that's the unique abilities. Mm. So like we do, uh, let's discuss some options here for some what we call potent abilities. Um, and then again, the, the always on abilities. Mm. Um, so for, for potent abilities, which again, these are typically those abilities, uh, the special unique abilities that are once an encounter or once a session and usually require the expenditure of a story point. Mm. Um, you know, uh, we, we've talked about this before, but there's the idea of agility substitution for other characteristics in a skill check. Mm. Honestly, that's a really hard one to justify. Mm. Because even with the most clever of narration, there's very few skill checks where you can regularly and reasonably substitute agility in place of the normal characteristic for a skill with regularity. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it, it's it's one thing to say, you know, uh, you, you know, you can replace uh, a brawn skill with um, uh, with with agility. You know, by spending a, a a story point, and you know, basically that might give them you know one time access to the finesse talent, so they could you know make that melee strike or that brawl check using their agility, and that's really cool. But then you've got those weird narrative situations where you have to justify how you can lift a boulder using athletics, <laughs> with your agility. It doesn't always quite mesh up. No. Therefore, if you're a fan of that story point driven potent ability, what we would recommend is that you instead use agilities to substitute skill ranks in other skills. So, you know, once per encounter, once per session, uh, you, you spend a story point and you know, make a skill check and you treat the ranks in that skill as equal to your agility. Um, now, honestly, it, it is best and we recommend doing this 
with because you need you need to call out you know specific types of skills you can do this with. We recommend doing this with either brawn based skills or cunning based skills, and I'll explain. Mm-hmm. For for brawn based skills, unlike the earlier example. When you're substituting skill ranks, what it really represents is your speed of reaction in place of a physical task or the avoidance of a physical danger. Mm. So, you know, if, if you're to do it for a combat skill, that makes total sense. But if you bring athletics or resilience into the into the picture, you know, if it's if it's athletics, you know, it's that that moment where you're you're quickly getting ahead of things. Maybe you're you know, you're you're not physically strong enough to lift that super heavy boulder, but you're maneuvering underneath it really quickly and adjusting this and adjusting that and manage to, you know, heave it off or or pry open that door. Mm. When it comes to resilience, it could be some simply represented narratively by something like a fast reaction, you mm. know, mm. to avoid whatever consequence that resilience check is being made for. Yeah. For cunning-based skills, um, if you decide to apply it there, it it literally represents you either fast talking or fast fingering your way uh, through a cunning based social interaction or a pickpocket, mm. um, which uh, I I really like. Mm. Um, you know, these examples might be stretching it a bit, but I mean, honestly, these are infrequently used abilities that 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 are going to cost a story point to use. Mm. So if you decide you want to go for that potent ability for agility. Those are some suggestions. But honestly, we rarely see this, Huli, do we not? Most of the time when we see agility-focused species, that unique ability is typically the all, an always-on ability, no? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, this is, this is the less potent um, of the two, but, but it doesn't cost you anything to, to use, and it's typically always going to be in play. So your things like dark vision, it can work well with the sharpshooter and the ghost concepts. Um, you know, natural defense is another really good choice. Uh, inherent reaction time given, given a natural defense of one, two million ranged. Um, and lastly, there's the, I guess we can call it the doesn't suffer strain to take a second maneuver. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> We we see that in in realms of Terranoth with with the elves we've got fleet of foot, or f- no sorry my apologies it's um the cat folk and it's called it's called fleet of paw, <laughs> as as you do, um which is very very thematic, um this is is it's a great and thematic use of of a special ability. And if you reverse the math from from the cat folk in uh, realms of Terranoth, it's only costed at uh, at five XP. It's it's a really powerful ability. I'll, I'll and yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later on um, when I'm discussing something that I've created. Um, but uh, you know, five XP for being able to just completely ignore the the strain cost. That's insane. Um, yeah. yeah, it's um, it's it's very thematic because it's exactly what you know cats do. Uh, they move fast, and it doesn't take them much energy to do it. Yeah. And I know that uh, that um, in the realms of Terranoth um, uh, hack that I've been doing for uh, Legacy of Fire, which is a, a Pathfinder adventure path, uh, we had a um, a cat folk character. And yeah, I'd, I'd never seen Fleet of Foot used really well. And yeah, there was this one bad guy that was kind of around the corner that they managed to spot, mainly with a triumph on a perception check. And uh, he straight away basically just said, right, I'm going, how far away is he? And oh, 
let's say, um, medium range. He made a bolt for it straight away and was able to get there in uh, in the single round, which uh, which is really, really cool. So uh, without, without suffering the strain. Without suffering the and, strain at all. Yeah. And now keep in mind, though, even with that fleet of foot or fleet of paw uh, <laughs> ability, you're still limited to a maximum of two maneuvers per round. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just that you're not suffering the strain cost, mm. um, which, as we continually bring up, adds up. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I know that uh, we've spoken about this heavily when it comes to spells and, and magic. But having, you know, I didn't have a lot of experience when it came to, to spellcasting um, in Genesis. But now that I've run a campaign, I've seen um, uh, one of the PCs who is the spellcaster. He's constantly, you know, running out of strain or, or not being able to power up abilities just yeah. because he needs to spend some of those uh, advantages to, to keep his strain up. Uh, to be able to use it. And every time that something happens, and it's only just because he gets one threat, he sort of, you can see him cringe in the seat where he goes, is he going to apply it as a point of strain? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's only one point. So, uh, so yeah. Okay, so Huli, shall we put our advice uh, to the fine listeners to task and maybe uh, uh, create some new agility archetypes live here on the show? I think that sounds really cool. Chris... I think you should go first because I love your your take on this on this uh, archetype. It's really cool. Oh, thank you. Um, it's definitely Star Warsy inspired. Yes, <laughs> um, but I tried to build this in a way where it could really fit into any setting. The species I've created are called the Navigators. The Navigators are a species without a home, uh, living nomadically and constantly on the move in large clan groups. However. They're not seeking a home. They live to move and, in fact, uh, culturally claim to have lost all record of their original place of origin. Mm. Um, culturally, they are devoted to exploration above all else. Um, they're focused on travel, discovering new places, and, and reaching the most far-flung reaches of settlement. Um, and and this, this proclivity is what has led everyone to call them, and eventually they've adopted their own moniker themselves of the Navigators. Mm. Uh, no matter where you go, you will almost always find traces that a navigator has been there first. <laughs> um, the navigators are a very lithe species uh, with two sets of arms. Mm. Um, they are fast talkers with incredibly fast metabolisms, uh, notoriously unable to sit still or even remain in one place for very long. <laughs> So in a space opera or a sci-fi setting, this species would likely move and live in migrant fleets. Mm -hmm. um, in a fantasy setting, they would just move around in large caravans. Mm -hmm. um, in either case, though, I, I think it's part of the write-up, um, solo uh, journeys of exploration as, as like a rite of passage among young adults would be a very common thing in the navigator culture mm -hmm. um, to give a, a PC a reason to be away from the group mm -hmm. uh, where they come from. Yeah. Now, in terms of the build, um, starting characteristics, obviously agility at three. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I kept cunning intellect and willpower at two. Mm -hmm. I was seriously tempted to pump intellect to three uh, for the, those navigation skills, basically. But it was just a little too on the nose for me. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't envision this species as naturally bright, just constantly full of energy and constantly on the move. Mm -hmm. Now, you may notice that I said agility at three cunning intellect and willpower at two, there's still two characteristics left. Mm. 
brawn and presence, both of which I actually put at one. So Ooh. one of them was the natural one. The other I actually brought down to one. Right. Um, not only are they very live creatures, uh, representing the I mean, represented by the low brawn, yeah. but their natural behavior, this almost ADD-like distractibility, mm-hmm. makes them incredibly hard to relate to. Um, and that's actually a trope. It's very common for this this type of theme and focus, you mm-hmm. know, for a species. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made sense to bring presence down to one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and considering some of the abilities I gave them, I really needed the extra 10 XP. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I decided to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So wounds and strain. How'd you go with that? So this one was kind of a weirdo for me. Um, so I, I made them a low brawn species, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, for wound threshold, uh, I actually went with 12 plus brawn, and I kept uh, strain threshold at 10 plus mm. willpower. I mean, even though they are lithe creatures with very low brawn, they're travelers, they're explorers. And as such, I felt they should be at least as tough or a little more tough than normal folk uh, in terms of the wound threshold department. Mm. Um, so kind of an interesting dichotomy there. And obviously that decision will cost me minus five XP to the build, but it's, it's worth it. Mm. In terms of special abilities, I, I gave them one free rank um, in either astrocartography or knowledge geography. Right. And that's going to depend, obviously, on the setting of which they're employed. You know, astrocartography, if it's sci-fi or space opera, <laughs> or knowledge geography or a related skill if you're in a fantasy setting or a modern mm-hmm. setting. Mm-hmm. I think that fits the theme of the navigators very well. And, and since it's a non-agility-based skill, that allows me to take it for free, in, in quotes, uh, without any extra XP cost of the species. Mm. In addition to that, though, I gave them another free rank in a different skill. Mm. Um, so they actually get two free ranks, one in obviously a navigation-based skill. The other, I gave them a free rank in negotiation. Mm. While I felt the hit to presence that I gave them was pretty well warranted, I also feel this species would would counter that naturally with so just some natural ability in negotiation. They're travelers. It, it just made sense. Mm. So I wanted them to have that low presence, but at the same time, they, they should still be on par with negotiation of capability. So giving them a free rank helped boost that up a bit. Uh, so I like that. And it's going to cost me another five minus five XP to my uh, my build cost there. So mm. you can see why I reduce presence. <laughs> uh, then we come into the other unique rules. To begin with, I gave them a special ability that I call extra limbs mm-hmm. because that's what they have, right? Mm-hmm. They have two sets of arms. At first, I kind of thought about going for the the fleet of paw, but it wasn't enough for me not mm. to represent the real power uh, that I, I wanted them to have. Mm-hmm. Um, furthermore, you know, since we have the costing from fleet of paw, I was like, okay, what, what what would an improved version of that look like? And I came up with extra limbs. Your character may downgrade their action to a maneuver on their turn even if they have already taken two maneuvers that turn. Mm. The extra maneuver still costs two strain as normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, this breaks that fundamental rule, and this lets this character potentially get three individual maneuvers in a single round at, for spending two strain, obviously. Mm. So um, may I ask a question with regards to that then? So if yeah. they end up doing three maneuvers... Um, that's still only going to cost them two strain, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, they don't get an action. Mm. They took. They. They. I mean. I mean. I mean. I think about it this way: if if you want to do two maneuvers in an action, it's going to cost you two strain, right? Yeah. 
Yep. Um, in this case, they can downgrade their action to a maneuver after having already performed two maneuvers. So they still got to spend the extra two strain. Yep. But it's just that, you know, if, if I mean, if, if you really want to move, mm. they can do it. Now, this is an incredibly potent ability that breaks um, one of the central rules in the game in terms of the action economy. Um, so I wanted to cost it high. Um, you know, it, it's definitely Fleet of Paws, Big Brother. Yeah. Uh, so as a result, um, you know, we, we, you know, you, obviously you get a free unique ability costed at minus five XP. I costed this at ten XP mm -hmm. um, hit, and maybe that's too low. You can disagree with me. Um, Look, I, again, I'd have to play test it, but um, yeah. you know, ten XP seems reasonable. Um, I may be inclined to go to fifteen uh, because you know, getting that three maneuvers um, in a turn, um, you know, it's it's pretty potent, especially if you. If you're linking that in, for example, with um, with aiming, does that mean that you could actually go up to a third aim? I mean, the rules kind of indicate that uh, it's only two, the most that you can ever go to. Um, but, um, yeah, that'd be interesting. Keep in mind, you can't take an action. <laughs> that is true. Um, okay. But, um, you know, when it comes to aim, the, the, the rule is that um, it's to your next combat action uh, uh -huh. so if you do three maneuvers in the turn um in one turn uh your next action is going to be in the next round uh which is going to be to fire so it's to to represent the the sniper um you know lining up that extreme shot uh to uh, to give themselves that uh, that extra to uh, to boost up without incurring any sort of strain. So I see. I, um, I thought yeah. I thought about that too, mm. and it's no different from any normal character. Mm. I mean, if I'm playing a human sniper, I can spend a round and two maneuvers to line up two boost die, and then when my next turn comes around, I can spend another maneuver yeah. to line up third boost die, yeah. and even pop two strain <coughs> and take another maneuver mm. to line up fourth boost die before I take my action. <laughs> That is true. If you're going to interpret it that way. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I kind of went through these scenarios in my head. Mm. And, and that's kind of why I costed it as I did. But I'd yeah. be really eager for folks to play test this. Yeah. Because, you know, and, and you know, listen, if, if it ends up being better as a 15 XP cost, I'm totally fine with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but as of right now, I costed it at 10 XP. Mm -hmm. um, and since you obviously get that 5 XP for free with unique abilities, that's another minus 5 to the total build. Mm. Um. And then I give them another interesting thematic unique rule, mm. um, a special ability that I call fast metabolism. Mm -hmm. Your character does not need to sleep and gains the benefits of a full night's rest with an hour of quiet contemplation. Mm. Um, to me, this is a, a good minus five XP ability. Mm. Um, it's relatively small potatoes in terms of its benefit um, because the only thing, the only time that really even matters is for natural healing. Mm. Um, and, and, and strain recovery. Yeah. Um, but truth be told, unless the entire party is navigators, I mean, you're going to be twiddling your thumbs for a full night while the rest, while everyone else sleeps anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's so, true. So very situational when it will come into play. Mm. Um, but I felt it was really thematic considering the, the write-up for this particular species. And so I costed it at minus five XP as well. Yep. Um, all in all, that's going to take me down to a starting XP of 90, Very uh, cool. which I felt was pretty good. Mm, I agree. I like it. 
It's very thematic. And I mean, uh, again, um, you know, to, to just touch base on that fast metabolism again, that, uh, you know, yes, in the space of, um, you know, a, a, an hour, you can recover all of your strain, especially if you're like a, a mage or something like that and you're with a party. The party's not going to wait around for an hour <laughs> between encounters for you to, to, uh, uh, to rebolster yourself so you can start casting spells. So, uh, I mean, sure, if you want to, but that means the bad guys have more time to prepare. So, uh, so yeah, but no, really good build. Thoroughly enjoyed that one. Hmm, very cool. And you went and got all crazy on it. <laughs> As I do. It's probably going to be controversial uh, once everybody listens to it. But um, so, look, um, uh I've uh, I've gone down the superheroes path and I've done the speedster. Um, so the run up that I've given it as fast as lightning, the speedster hero moves from place to place, righting wrongs in the names of justice. While many heroes fly or move about in high gadget gear, the speedster is capable of great exploits using the power of momentum generated by their speed. Seemingly ignoring the laws of physics, speedsters often run across water, up vertical inclines, and even through the air when precipitation is present. Yet the speedsters' power comes from their overcharged metabolism, which in turn is their greatest weakness. With their immense hunger, a speedster often seeks out allies, sponsors, and other supergroups who can help them sustain, keep themselves sustained with much-needed resources, particularly food. Uh, a speedster's powers are not limited to their faster-than-normal movement. Rapid punches, whirlwinds, and even time travel are possible, but the speedster must constantly practice and hone their skills to achieve such astonishing feats. Now, it's no secret that I love superheroes, particularly the MCU, um, but I'm a huge Flash fan as well. Uh, and with a lot of hype of the, uh, the crisis of Infinite Earths recently... Uh, I felt this was as good as any opportunity uh, to give speedsters the once-over. So, uh, now, unlike Chris, I've gone to a very specific setting type. So, you know, it has to be superheroes. There is no way that you could use this outside of this realm. And there is a reason for that, and we'll get to that at the very end. You know, I'm also going to quickly cover off on the best choices for super attributes. So if you're not familiar with what a super attribute is, go to the tone section of the core rulebook. uh, And the very last one, so it's the very last thing that you'll see before the character sheet, um, is the superhero tone. Uh, And what happens is that you can assign two attributes to be super attributes. And what that means is that when you use a skill that uses those particular attributes, if you roll a triumph, it becomes open-ended. So, um, you know, exploding dice. Uh, So if you roll a triumph, you get to roll another yellow dice. And if you roll another triumph, uh, you get to roll another yellow dice, and et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I mean by super attributes. But um, I'm going to try to stay within the the core rules as presented um, in both, uh, as I said, the core rules and the expanded player's guide. So, and realistically, I didn't go too much into the expanded player's guide here. Uh, so you can do pretty much everything under the core rules. Um, so the starting characteristic um, for agility, I've gone with three. Now, speedsters are literally super fast. So agility is something that they need. Otherwise, you know, one spray of an ice gun and they're running headlong into a vat of acid. Um, because they're running so fast. Um, you know, I was tempted to take agility to four, but that would mean, um, you know, I'd need another one somewhere, and that wasn't really going to suit what I wanted to do. 
brawn, cunning, and intellect, uh, and as well as willpower, they're all going to be as two. Now, these seemed obvious choices to me, and I, and I even considered taking willpower to three. My reasoning for this was that the strain is going to be the speedster's friend, and many of their abilities are probably, if we, we start going into talents and things like that, are going to be powered by strain. But because um, you know, of, of the point of limitation and balance, I'm stuck with, with leaving willpower as two. I, um, I chose, uh, similarly to, to you, Chris, I chose presence at one. Now, a speedster, it's, it, a speedster is not unfriendly. You know, we, we look at the likes of Barry Allen, and, and he's certainly not, um, you know, impersonable at all. Um, but he's a little bit awkward at the start, and, you know, he does work solo most of the time. And a speedster is moving so fast, they tend to be doing their own thing. They're a bit of a support character for the other big heavy hitters. Uh, you know, they're moving things from place to place so that it's more easily accessible by some of the other characters. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, they are this bit of a, a lone gunman type thing. So it uh, presence of one really sort of suited the theme for me. For wound and strain, um, I've kept uh, the, the wounds at, at 10 um, plus brawn. Uh, because really, they're not sort of the the they're not supposed to be getting hit. Really, they're the get in, get out, and move again. For the the strain, however, I, I decided to go up and take it to twelve. Uh, <laughs> well, the reason is, and I mean that's going to cost me fifteen points here. Strain is going to be an incredibly important resource for the speedster. And so an extra two points here was going to be imperative. It's an expensive exercise, but supers do have 50 more XP than normal in their starting XP. So I'm not too worried about that. So yeah, 15 points is, is what that's been. Um, and that's that's a good chunk of cash. It really, really is. Yeah. Uh, but but I, think, I think it's a wise decision. Mm. Well, now, what about the free rank? Did you, you know, for the special abilities, did you did you stick with something agility that's also very expensive, or did you go with something else? No, look, I went a little bit different here. I've gone with athletics uh, as the the free rank, and the reason is is that you know coordination is going to make the most sense due to their their three in agility, but you know feats of running fast is definitely powered by the athletic skill, and that's something that we talked about in a previous episode. So to me, athletics was something which I felt was more important and it wasn't going to be uh, an extra cost as well. Uh, so, um, you know, athletics is certainly where I chose to, to put that. Now, the other unique rules. This is where things get a little bit weird. Um, <laughs> this is where it's probably going to cause a little bit of controversy. So, um, similarly to yours, Chris, I um, gave uh, the Speedster Fleet of Foot. Uh, and it's, uh, it says, you can perform a second maneuver to move without suffering strain. Uh, they still cannot exceed the limitation of two maneuvers in a turn. And that, that sort of, it's basically Fleet of Paw, which is taken directly out of Terranoth. But this is a great ability for a Speedster that they would be using all the time. Uh, to move about the, the battlefield without spending that extra strain. Having heard your version of the, the special ability that you mentioned before with extra limbs, I may even be so inclined to, to change that around a little bit to in, incorporate that. 
but as a uh, something that that is happening all the time. Uh, I think that that gets that gets carried from point A to point B without using that strain, which they would be using to power a lot of their their talents and and special abilities, like I'm just about to mention. Yeah, I, I, for, and for that reason, I think I like fleet of foot better than than getting three maneuvers because if you're going to give three maneuvers, it still has to cost that two strain, and this yep. is such a strain heavy build. I I like. The fact that you did you, you settled for fleet of foot, hmm. especially when you consider this next special ability you put in. <laughs> All right, so it's called burst of speed. So once per encounter, as an action, your character may spend four strain. So that's a huge cost. Four strain to move anywhere within long range. Now I costed that at negative ten. Now that was based realistically on flying. You know, it's a powerful ability, but it's one that is classically speedster-like. And uh, however, it is limited um, and has, as I mentioned before, that has that huge strain cost to pull off in the first place. Yeah. But to be able to move from point A to point B, uh, that's something that they do, but they don't do it all the time. It may be just in that key point in that combat that they have to go from point A to point B and really spend that strain to be able to do it because of the strain cost i've decided to make it negative 10 and i'm happy to be um proven wrong with regards to that (laughs) no 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 i i i think you well costed it uh Mm. one because of i think it's worth minus 10 one because of the strain cost which is massive Mm. two it's once an encounter Mm. but three and most importantly it costs an action yeah okay so so they can't do it and then get a hit in. No. Um, and with all those limitations in place, no, I think it's very well costed at minus mm. 10. And I think that, um, you know, if I was to, to cast my mind a little bit further down the track, if with a, a super sort of setting, you may have specifically for a speedster, you might have like a tier five talent that allows them to turn this ability into a maneuver. Mm. Again, tier five, so hugely expensive, and, you know, there may even be an additional um, strain cost as a result. But, um, you know, that's just something to, to consider for later on down the track. I also put on, and this, this was probably the most expensive ability um, out of all of them, although it is by my costings, uh, and it's called increased metabolism. Now, it's, it's kind of um, sending your increased metabolism um, into the ether. Um, so it says your character only requires an hour of sleep to gain the benefits of a full night's rest. Additionally, you double any wounds recovered through natural healing. And at the end of the encounter, when a character attempts to recover strain, they recover an extra two strain. Now I've costed that at minus 15. This ability does have three parts to it. And that's the reason why that I think that it's 15 points. Um, you've got reduced sleep requirements, you've got additional wounds from natural rest, and you've got an extra strain recovery at the end of the encounter. Given that, as I said, that's the most powerful ability that uh, that the character has. But this is what we see from speedsters. Because they have this huge metabolism that you know we always see, especially in the Flash, we always see that uh, the Barry, suddenly he's been beaten up, and within the next scene, suddenly he's okay again. Yes, he has a whole heap of uh, help from Caitlin, but ultimately it's, it's because he has this, this fast recovery and this fast healing 
which, you know, I could have used uh, regeneration, I guess, in that regard. But uh, I really like the, the adding of the three pieces to, to add into this increased metabolism. Yeah, I love it. Mm. And then the last one. And this is, this is something that some GMs may find a little bit difficult to get their head around because it is a little bit more of a, of a, uh, a narrative sort of uh, ability here. Um, but this is a negative ability and it's called need for sustenance. And it says your character requires additional sustenance to maintain your abilities. If your character does not consume the equivalent of 10 times the normal amount of food required by an average human, you must increase the difficulty of all skill checks twice and lose access to fleet of foot, bursts of speed and increased metabolism. I've only given this a plus 10 because I think that a lot of the time it's just going to be assumed that, that you, uh, you're feeding yourself. But, you know, this is going to be the downside to all of this speed in the first place. And as I said, it's more narrative um, and it's highly dependent on how you're, you're handling wealth in your campaign. Now, wealth is something that, that you see quite often in superhero settings. So I think that if you've got a mechanic like that in the background, and it would probably take the place of, you know, obligation if you're talking Star Wars, um, heroic abilities potentially when you're talking Terranoth, or um, uh, with Shadow of the Beanstalk when you're talking about favours, you would have a wealth system. So you can have this Tony Starks of the world. But as a result, I've made that a simple plus 10. Now, if my maths are correct, the starting XP for this type of character would be 110 XP, and that's going to be inclusive of the 50 points that you automatically get when you're a superhero in the superhero tones. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, and, and your, yeah, your math checks out on that for me too. Yeah. Um, I love the need for sustenance. I mean, and there's – for people for people who are Flash fans, <laughs> um, you know, whether, whether you – I mean, whether you read various source material, but like – even in the show, Barry makes a comment at one point uh, about how many calories he has to consume in a day. Mm. And there's 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 actually differing source material on this. Um, and sometimes he, he like it's been said he has to consume 12,000 calories a day. <laughs> but uh, honestly, I've seen I've seen other things where it's like he needs to consume 20 to 40,000 calories a day. Wow. Depending on how active he is. Mm. Um, and that's just that's just that's that's a massive <laughs> amount of food. <laughs> And I think in the series they've uh, they've developed a formula for a food which obviously you know it's super science, so it just gives them um, you know all of that without having to you know um, chew down twenty uh, Big Macs in a in a in a single sitting. So uh, so yeah, but I mean that's the sort of thing that if you've got a character like that, that um, you know you're having to spend a lot of your money on food that your science-based character may start going down that path and going, okay, well, you know, let's craft some sort of, um, uh, some sort of food sus- uh, substance that is going to be able to replace that for you. So, um, so yeah. So what are your thoughts, Chris? <laughs> um, I, I, think, I, think, I think the Flash is going to be eating at the Heart Attack Grill a lot. Uh, <laughs> are, you, are you familiar with the Heart Attack Grill? I am not. <laughs> Oh man, it's this it's this insane establishment that's in Las Vegas. They've mm. tried opening a few others um around the country but they've all closed. But but basically um it it's considered the worst the world's worst junk food. Mm. Um they only serve burgers and french fries and their their burgers and fries are literally cooked in like lard. 
Right. <laughs> uh, but they, you can get like a one, a one patty, two patty, three patty, or four patty burger. Hmm. The the four patty burger, which is called the quadruple bypass. <laughs> right. Sounds appropriate. <laughs> Uh, it's two pounds of beef, 20 strips of bacon, eight slices of cheese. Uh, that coupled with the fries is 9,900, like 880 calories or something like that. Oh my God. Um, and they, they serve milkshakes <laughs> that are like made from buttermilk, right? And so they're like, like, like if you get a buttermilk shake, fries and a quadruple bypass, it's like a 10,000 calorie meal. <laughs> You, um, like you, people, uh, uh, this is this is horrible. Like people, people have died in the restaurant. Oh my god! Do they have to sign yeah. like a waiver or something like that before they start? <laughs> I, mean, I, I think I think Nevada is pretty liberal about that. Like kind of like you know <laughs> you know what you're getting into when you eat here. But yeah, that's what that's what that's what this made me think of. Um, wow. Anyway, weird tangent. I I I really like the concept. I mean the the superhero species you know that that gets when superhero characters get plus 50 xp um that that's a really interesting and 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 that plus 50 can be used actually to spend on characteristics even Mm. so it's not like advanced level play yep um and and you can even use it to increase skill ranks to three like at starting character creation so i mean that definitely adds some adds some interesting stuff to it because without that i mean this is what a 60 xp species (laughs) um this is not so, something I mean, that I would do normally no. <laughs> with without that extra fifty hit. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I really, I really do love it. There's some when, when you get into that superhero theme, a lot of people I don't think have taken a really strong look at it. You talked about, you know, the extra fifty XP, the exploding dice for the super characteristics. Mm. There's another interesting rule in there too that because superheroes fight primarily with their fists, yep. that base unarmed damage is actually equal to double your brawn, not mm. your brawn. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, um, I'd love to get this on the table. Absolutely. Now, one thing, just in to finish that up, because I did mention it at the start that I would talk about what sort of are the best choices for super attributes in this. The obvious one is agility, but the other one is you could really go either way, and it, it really depends on on what sort of a, a speedster you're going for. So you would be either looking at brawn. So that you've got that athletics, or you would be looking at willpower, so that you're looking at your resilience. So you know that's the that's the direction that you would go with that uh, that second one. So you know it depends on whether it's hard and fast, um, or whether it's a long distance um, type of speedster as well. So yeah. Anyway, that's my thoughts. Very cool. So um, so yeah. So we'll make sure that uh, that this is also available. Um, in the supplementary document that you can download from our website uh, with regards to this specific episode. Uh, and you can also go and take a look at uh, the other ones that, uh, that we've done uh, and give us some feedback on those, as we mentioned before. So, uh, so yeah, really keen to get some feedback on that. And, um, yeah, if you're using it at a table, let us know. I want to I see what happens when people use navigators at the table. Um, and if you've got a super setting, I want to see how you're uh, you're do- using the the speedster as well. So, uh, so yeah, interesting stuff. All right. So all of this talk about burgers and speedsters has made me super hungry to talk to Brett Bowen, uh, who's going to be our special guest to talk about the setting notebook, uh, and we'll be talking to him on breaking the mold. 
breaking the mold. The Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis. New settings, new rules options, adventure and campaign modules, and much, much more. But some creators go above and beyond subverting our expectations and breaking the mold with their work. Our Breaking the Mold segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering available right now in the Genesis Foundry as we separate the pure alloy from the slag and point you to the best content out there. Now, tonight's guest is a member of the team behind some of the most popular products on the Foundry right now, the content offered by Studio 404 Games. We spoke to Phil and Kimber from Studio 404 back in Episode 2 to go through their their epic silver-selling Starkana campaign setting. But tonight, we're graced with a new voice from the Studio 404 here to chat with us about the copper-selling setting notebook. We're glad to welcome, for the first time to the Forge podcast, Brett Bowen. Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Awesome. So, Brett, to start us off, because people may not be necessarily familiar with yourself, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your gaming career? Uh, sure. Um, I am, as many people uh, our age, it goes back to a certain red box that came around uh, around when I was about age 12. Um, and then a few years later, I discovered this great thing called LARPing, where you got out of the box and into the forest and started running around for all weekend with, uh, fake weapons and little beanbags represent spell packets, uh, to represent magic spells, um, and started doing that, uh, for a significant amount of time. Lightning bolt, lightning bolt, lightning bolt. (laughs) Yep. That was the game. (laughs) Um, or one significantly like it, there was a whole bunch of uh, essentially rules ripoffs that have happened over the years uh, as people have made advancements in the rules and changes for copyright reasons and such. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere after, uh, somewhere around when I got into college, uh, having gone to LARPing, I met up with this guy named Phil. I can never pronounce his last name correctly, so we'll just call him GM Phil for sake of argument. Um, and we actually became roommates for a while. We started gaming uh, pretty much as soon as we started meeting um, and g- gathered a group of like-minded individuals to do some table gaming throughout uh, our college career. A couple of years after that, we still wanted to get together, and a certain role, a D20 Star Wars game came out. Uh, and Due to a particular uh, player that didn't want me at the table, I was uh, given the insult of being a non-role-playing power gamer. Oh. However, I took this insult, completely turned it on its head, and formed the Power Gamers Union Local 404. (laughs) (laughs) Or Massachusetts Local 404. Mm -hmm. And I gathered another group of like-minded individuals who began looking at rule systems uh, significantly, finding loopholes and problems, and then advising GMs or designers uh, how to fix these things. Of No, no, you really don't want to do these things. These are a bad combination that will be horribly broken. Um, and we actually got uh, fairly popular among our greater circle of friends um, and started doing a significant amount of review work as people were creating new uh, rules for either table games and more specifically for uh, LARPs in the area. Hmm. Um, My personal achievement there was uh, at one point there was a, there were three different accelerant LARPs coming out in one year. 
and all three of them had been uh, gone over by me before they went live. Wow. Back when FFG Star Wars was coming out, well, it still is, let's be honest, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but we're not on a Star Wars podcast, so we got to play test some of the Star Wars uh, stuff for FFG, including Friends Like These, mm-hmm. uh, done mostly by Keith Kappel, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got to play test the Genesis Core rulebook, uh, which led to me putting together uh, the Earth Dawn Genesis hack that has been going around for some time. Mm-hmm. So to- enough to do, do donate a, a bound copy of that <laughs> as an auction prize at Gamer Nation Con last year. That's right. Glorious. Which was, I actually did a recording of that, and uh, when uh, Donovan Morningfire suddenly leapt the vote up to, what was it, 400, you can very faintly hear me saying, what the hell just happened? (laughs) 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 So that kind of brings us up to uh, 2019, where it's been a very busy year for my actual career within the gaming community. community. Mm. Um, we started up uh, Studio 404 Games. Originally, we were just going to be doing uh, settings and stuff like that without a rule system, so we wouldn't have to deal with rights to use rule systems. Mm. Uh, but then we got invited into the Foundry uh, launch, uh, so that cleared up, oh, we get to use the rule system we want to use anyway, so that's just great. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, thanks to some uh, agreements, shall we say, with Darren West, I joined the uh, Adventure Writing Academy, mm-hmm. and also be, uh, around the same time, this is all like quarter one of 2019, all these things happened at once, <laughs> um, I also got brought in by FASA Games to help do some development for the Mystic Paths expansion book that they put out over the summer. Mm. So 2019 has been extremely busy. <laughs> mm. No kidding. <laughs> well, okay. So, with that kind of storied career, and and you talk about this system, the system that you wanted <laughs> to build Starcana for, anyway, right? Um, you talk about this system. I mean, obviously, we love it, and uh, obviously, you're a fan as well. So, we ask this of all of our guests. We got to know, man. What is your first love of Genesis? And what we mean is, what style of game or, or game setting or 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 theme do you like to get on the table most when you mm. play Genesis? Well, first and foremost, since I'm primarily a rules-minded kind of guy, I completely love the narrative dice system. Um, the three axes of resolution just is so good, and it's so hard for me to go back to a simple pass-fail mechanic now. Um, just the creativity that that brings to the table and the total unpredictability of any single die roll. Mm. Plus, there's the fact of, everyone in the table can get involved with coming up with the ideas. I know Phil has told the story many times of we did the Creative Crates module, uh, the, the starter module for Edge of the Empire, where we were doing a job for a hut. All of a sudden, the hut's right-hand man betra- comes out and betrays him with a bunch of goons that are all shooting at us. And they, one of them has a remote control for the hut's uh, hover sled. Mm. And I go, I want to take a shot at the guy with the remote control. Either I can take him out or I can disarm him of the remote control. And we got no problem anymore. So I took my shot. I ended up missing with three advantage, a triumph, and a despair. 
Um, so I didn't do any damage, but I used the advantage to disarm him of the remote control, which mm-hmm. is what I really wanted anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil's brother, Andrew, suggested that the Triumph land the remote control in a bunch of junk so he couldn't find the remote control easily. <laughs> um, and then Phil came up with the despair of, however, the remote control has now placed his hover sled out of control, and the rest of the encounter was really all about getting the hut back under control and not falling into the ocean <laughs> where he couldn't swim. <laughs> And this one roll at the climax of the module really sold all of us on the game. Mm. And we've just been hooked ever since. Um, As for styles of game, um, I think part of the narrative dice mechanics really fits in very well with um, high adventure, with big stakes and big actions and big swings of fate that seem like chance. What what setting best encapsulates that for you, though? I mean, do you like fantasy? Do you prefer space opera, sci-fi, steampunk, weird war? What <laughs> I'm always a fantasy first kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love me my magic. <laughs> um, to wit, I have played Rollmaster with an MIT graduate in physics, and he enforced actual physics upon everything in the game, and I actually had to shouted at him at one point to keep his physics off of my magic. <laughs> that's, that's okay, so considering, considering that, I actually had the pleasure recently of running um, online for you and, and a good portion of the Studio 404 crew um, a, a one-shot for my familiar setting, which takes a very weird look at fantasy and a very restricted view of magic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, did that bother you? <laughs> no, no, uh, because you kind of turned it into, as opposed to the very freeform magic that is from the core rulebook, um, you took that and nailed it down to, into specific powers that we had mastered at that time. Hmm. That's perfectly fine in my book. It's still using everything, all the tools we got. Um, and it, over time, I can imagine growing characters to have more and more access, but it might be one spell at a time as opposed to uh, the entirety of magic potential. <laughs> that was a fun game, though. <laughs> I, I had fun with you guys. I still have theories about the uh, actual goings-on, and if you do come up with a part two of that module, mm, <laughs> we might have to talk again. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, to a certain degree, so um, related to the fact of uh, what you were just saying, of you gave us, uh, you locked us in on one particular spell effect per character. Unless they had, a, like, I think you gave us a, some of us a talent to have a second one. Right. Um, that's actually somewhat similar to what I did with Earthdawn Genesis in order to mimic how the source material worked. Um, because in regular Earthdawn, you can just cast spells all day and there is no drain or, or real, really consequence. Uh, or at least uh, the caster does not get exhausted. Mm. But you are sending off this huge astral flare every time you do so, asking these otherworldly horrors to come along and eat your face. Um, so what the character, what the people in the narrative had done is develop these things called spell matrices, where you put the astral pattern of a spell into your matrix, and it no longer sends off this huge astral flare. Mm. But that means now you can only cast that spell safely as often as you want. So similar to what you did with Familiar, I allowed PCs to design their own spell, put it into a matrix, and you can cast that spell as often as you want with no strain cost. The strain cost came in when you changed what was in your matrix, because changing your matrixes on the fly under the pressure of combat and whatnot is extremely taxing, and you really want to 
get that uh, change of your matrix correct. So that's when the strain cost starts kicking in as opposed to how the core rulebook had it. Interesting. Very intriguing, yeah. Mm. Yeah. All right, Brett. So just to, to change direction a little bit, Studio 404's mm-hmm. first entry onto the foundry was Starkana. Uh, and then it was followed up uh, by the Starkana adventure, Everything New Was Old, uh, and then some Starkana-specific character sheets. This product, however, the setting notebook uh, that we're here to talk about tonight, is uh, it's a generic offering that, that is quite different from what Studio 404 has offered up to this point. Firstly, what is the setting notebook about? Give us the pitch. Tell us, tell us about this in my opinion, amazing supplement because I'm really keen to find out how it was how it was developed and whatever else. So, so tell us a little bit about it first up. Okay, uh, the setting notebook pitch essentially is that this is a designed as a tool to guide aspiring setting creators to include all of their design elements uh, that they need to create the setting that they're looking to make. Hmm. It expands upon the Genesis Core Rulebook setting sheet. Um, which is from like page 99, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a form for a little PDF that gives you a place to put all your notes down as you're brainstorming with your uh, players or with your other creators. Um, we also have a, the first chapter is full of advice about how to use the book, a number of uh, tips and tricks that we've discovered uh, as far as what you should think about uh, in this particular section. We have, let's see, uh, checklists of all the published Genesis skills and talents, so you can decide what does exist in your particular setting. Mm-hmm. Table to create new archetypes that uh, adds up the XP costs for you. And a space to create new skills, talents, and equipment. That's the nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... This product in itself and what you describe is kind of a bit non-standard. I mean, compared to the other offerings on the Foundry and quite frankly, even the other offerings from Studio 404. What prompted you guys to create this kind of a supplement? What do you you hope it's going to bring to the table for gamers? So after the initial rush for the launch, (laughs) um, we did a bit more research into what people expect from the Foundry and other uh, DMs Guild and other such uh, player content uh, producing sites. Mm. And we found a lot of them were tools to help either GMs run games or to help PCs play their characters. The thing, though, that sets Genesis apart from D&D, for example, is that a lot of what Genesis is about is creating your own setting. Mm. And so other places don't have tools that fit that kind of idea. Uh, but that's a major factor of Genesis as a whole. So that was definitely something we wanted to allow for new people coming into the game to have. We expected that people who are already part of the community and have already, especially if they've already created a setting or if they're say halfway through or greater, um, they probably already have these tools to some degree, although maybe not all of them, or maybe they could use a different perspective, but by and large, this is really for the new people that come into Genesis and are looking for uh, guidance, uh, for more guidance and um, new tools in order to make the most of the of, out of their setting. Mm. There was also at this particular time period, um, there was an unfortunate trend of the online community uh, for folks to put down new arrivals uh, with their new ideas. Uh, they were 
too outside of the perceived rules of Genesis or what Genesis allowed. Uh, and I actually went on to our 404 website and did a uh, blog post in the downstairs with stu- uh, downstairs of the studio section uh, called Coloring Outside the Guidelines mm-hmm. and went through a number of different, uh, shall we say, inspirational suggestions for people that are creating their new settings mm-hmm. uh, or creating any new elements within, within the Genesis rules. The whole point is to come up with new stuff. And the entirety of the Genesis core book is very much a guideline. Like, in my opinion, the only thing that is sacrosanct is the narrative dice mechanics of this is how you roll dice and this is how you add up successes, failures, and everything else. Hmm. How talents work, how skills work, and whatnot like that. We can find new ways to do pretty much all of it. Uh, like I just explained the Earth Dawn Genesis magic system, which is a healthy step away from how the core rulebook magic system works. Mm-hmm. But then again, the core magic rule system is a optional rule in the back of a guideline book. <laughs> <laughs> so it's meant to be hacked and manipulated and experimented with. And that was a significant Uh, challenge and tone we were really going for with the setting notebook is a lot of our advice was just enough advice to inspire or uh, inspire the reader, but not so much that we're telling them how to do it. Mm, Very good. Now for uh, a non-standard supplement, what did the, what did the development process look like? Uh, Especially sort of like playtesting. Was it even a thing? Uh, that you had to do with this because it's really unique. And I mean, I love anyone who has the the skills to be able to to put sort of uh, formulas and whatever else into PDFs. Um, I don't have that skill. You obviously do. Um, and I think that it's a really helpful tool to have, especially if you're sort of at the gaming table and you've, you've got your iPad or something like that, uh, that you're running it on the fly, that you want to be mm. able to, especially if you're doing like a, a setting roulette or you, you're doing something where you're talking around the table about what you're going to be putting in with uh, into the campaign with your players and you're wanting to be able to do all this stuff on the fly. So what sort of a process were, was uh, did you have to go through um, to uh, to produce a product in the first place? Well, it's funny that you mentioned, uh, I appreciate the compliment. However, a lot of what I did uh, on this PDF to do the calculations and such, I learned for the purpose of this document. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't know how to do it before. I figured it out as we went. Um, and apparently part of it included uh, learning Java, which I have no knowledge of except for the code that I used in this document. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's really that simple. <laughs> Maybe someday I'll learn a little bit more, but right now I knew enough to get this thing done. Right. As far as play testing and uh, the development of these tools, uh, really it falls down to the fact of these are what we use in order to make Fallout and Earth Dawn and Starkana. Mm-hmm. I just found these. Uh, I had them up all on spreadsheets on online, so I could access them anywhere. Mm-hmm. And having them all in front of me as a spreadsheet was just extremely helpful. The challenge, of course, was to get a spreadsheet from a usable spreadsheet from and an actual spreadsheet to a PDF that could be put up onto drive-through. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, well, th- that's that makes sense. Okay, so then having having developed this and having it come from your 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 thought bubble initially, what 
tips and tricks can you give for gamers who purchase it? I mean, are there any any rules of thumb you can provide to using the supplement well or, uh, you know, best best practices within it? Uh, absolutely. Um, okay, first one that is big and important to know. Um, on the credits page, so really page two of the PDF, there's a nice big hazard yellow clear all fields button. This will clear the entire document of everything you have on it. <laughs> Every single field will be wiped clean. <laughs> um, so do not push it unless you really, really mean it. <laughs> um, the big thing for actually using the document, however, um, that was one of the big reasons that I created the spreadsheets in the first place was the skills by career page. Um, this allows you to, at a glance, look at which skills not only are in your setting, but also which ones are being represented by careers that you also have created. Um, and then you can start seeing where you have too many skills are represented by, or one skill is represented by too many careers, or there are too many skills that aren't represented at all. And that's fine so long as that's an intentional choice. Mm. If it is an accident, then maybe you need to double uh, reconsider the fact of does the skill need to still be in the setting or do I need to create one more career that actually has that skill or could one of these other careers actually have that skill, that sort of thing. And if you have one skill overrepresented, especially if it's say melee or ranged, mm. should that skill then be split up into the two skills that we're used to with heavy and light? Uh, or if it's a different skill, say like, who knows, survival or, oh, I don't know, Brawl, because <laughs> Ready Fight is pretty popular too. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, you can find these patterns that you may have made either intentionally or accidentally and make a conscious decision about how you want to proceed and properly build your setting. Mm, very cool. Now, uh one of the questions that I did have when um, just from the creation side of things, because obviously we're here to, you know, try to um, teach people, I guess, to on, on what to put into their products. How did you find that information? I mean, what was the process? I know that you said that you, you taught yourself, but could you go into very briefly where you went to find that information? Mostly it was online research. Mm -hmm. um, some of it was simply poking around at uh, – Adobe Acrobat for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, the other big thing that I did discover uh, while creating this was that uh, in InDesign, and of course we're all using InDesign because that's the template that we were given, <laughs> uh, in InDesign you can actually start, uh, start off your process with interactive elements. You can start setting up uh, text boxes and check boxes and various other things. Um, not everything, unfortunately, but at the very least you can uh, set up a box in your InDesign so that every time you export it to a PDF, you already have that box there, as opposed to having to then start all over every time you export the PDF and create all the text boxes and all the other interactive elements every single time you go into Acrobat. Mm. So it's a big time saver if you work in InDesign in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we've talked a lot about the development of, uh, of the product and uh, where the idea has stemmed from. So... Can you give us a bit of a glimpse into something exciting or unique in the setting notebook uh, to to whet our appetite, as it were? And this one is actually fairly uh, appropriate, being that one of your best segments is uh, the archetype creation. Mm -hmm. um, I really like listening to you guys uh, hash that out. <laughs> um, so one of the quotes we have in our advice section is, 
it is important to keep archetypes very close to the same effective XP total. Uh, we found that variations of less than 10 XP works well. Follow the XP guide in the rulebook, especially if you plan on sharing your work with the online community. However, it is more important that you keep the archetypes balanced throughout your own setting. Not all archetypes are meant for every setting. Mm-hmm. This is why in the archetype uh, builder a page, it's only doing so, it's only totaling up the XP that you've spent on all the various elements that you've worked out. It's not actually going, okay, so because you have a brawl of three, that's 30 XP. It's not doing that math for you. It also has no way of knowing that you have uh, however many free skill ranks on this particular archetype, and therefore that's worth however much XP. Hmm. It doesn't know any of that, uh, and it doesn't know how much – it doesn't care how much starting XP you originally started with uh, and worked your way down or up or whatever. Um, it's all up to you to figure out how that all is. And I've noticed that through various – conversations with the community and also listening to your guys' show, a lot of people have a lot of different ways of doing it. Hmm. And that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, I had never heard until I listened to you guys talk about Shadow of the Beanstalk um, about counting the the favor that uh, Shadows of the Beanstalk characters start off with as a reason to have, uh, I think it was 10 more XP. Hmm. Yep. Uh, I had never considered that. And that was that was our, another reminder of everyone has a different way of doing it or different <laughs> uh, things that they're thinking about. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, in my opinion, it's not as important how you do it. It's more important that what you create um, across your setting mm. are all balanced against each other. Because mm. we also see some of that in the uh, the expanded players guide. Um, that some of the uh, the archetypes are definitely not uh, for other settings because they're they're way more than the the average hundred. Uh, so mm-hmm. they're uh, especially when you start looking at like your I can't remember the name of the section uh, when you're talking about the the uh, the the mythic sort of Greek mm-hmm. mythology and stuff like that as well. So yeah, the mythic mythic settings with the demigods and sorcerers yeah. and such. Yeah. Absolutely, and they're completely off the scale. But there is a reason because you know that's the sort of story that you're telling. Uh, the same right. sort of thing would, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean that that's the sort of thing that, as we spoke about earlier in the episode, when you look at a superhero setting, it's supposed to be over the top because that's what superheroes are. So, so right. yeah, hmm. yeah. I I I find this kind of stuff obviously. Obviously, it's fascinating to talk about. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think that's what intrigued me most about the setting notebook is, I mean, it's a cool tool. Let's not get past the the technical aspect of just how cool and useful it is. Mm. But beyond that, there's some really grounded and meaningful, well-earned advice around keeping things balanced. Mm. I, I think that's what I, I really enjoyed most about it. Yeah. So just well done. Mm. Thank you. So, Brett, this product obviously came a little bit out of left field and when we talked to phil and kimber when we first had studio 404 on the show they didn't hint at it at all Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so in light of all this i gotta ask the same question what's next for studio 404 and the foundry what are we going to see from you guys next 
Well, the very next thing is, uh, by the time this is reaching people's uh, ears, I'll have uploaded an update to the setting notebook that includes all the material from the expanded player's guide. Mm -hmm. um, so there'll be more uh, talents on the checkbox checklist to uh, include. Um, and I'm also making a form-fillable specialization tree uh, to put in the back of it as well. Uh, and then I also, because of the expanded player's guide, developed more of their setting building as well. I uh, included some of its suggestions of uh, notes to take on building a planet. Ooh. Nice. That's cool. One thing that I'll note uh, that is different for the specialization tree, to continue the theme of the book, it is extremely manipulatable, uh, like as opposed to most trees that has the first row at the top to be all five XP, I've actually left those blank. So if it, if you happen to have one, if you want to build it more like the Star Wars force trees, you can totally make the first uh, box at the top worth 10, 20, whatever XP, and then work your way down in whatever pattern you can create on it mm. uh, at whatever cost. Uh, so I'm not just limiting it to 5, 10, 15, 20, that sort of thing. Mm. Awesome. We are nearing completion of a Starkana Magical Expansion book. Mm. Uh, this is going to have details about how magic has affected the Elmacar galaxy uh, and updating the rules to include the Expanded Player's Guide material, uh, along with other new talents of our creation, uh, some example spells, and my personal favorite, some magical locations throughout the galaxy. Very cool. Because you can never have enough location books, that's for sure. <laughs> especially ones with strange and mystical effects upon those who <laughs> enter them oh, indeed. Um, we are also in playtesting for a second Starkana module mm -hmm. and when that gets through some playtesting you might see it on the shelves pretty soon uh, starting in 2020 we plan to uh, get going on a new setting that is going to be a futuristic heist theme setting Right, uh, and uh, this particular setting is uh, what we have so far teased as something new that we are looking forward to running at Gamer Nation Con 007, ah. uh, and possibly not just for the RVG games that are purchased with our name on it. Ooh. Well, it certainly sounds like that. There's a lot from uh, Studio 404 to look forward to. So, um, so yeah, that's that's absolutely excellent. Um, so, um, Brett, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's, uh, you know, I, I know like everybody who's involved in the industry and is trying to get work done, you know, your time is precious. So thank you very <laughs> much for, uh, for taking the time to, uh, to come on the show and, and talk about, uh, the setting notebook. It, it's been an absolute pleasure. Same here. I've been loving the show since you guys started it and I'm so happy that I got to be on it one time. <laughs> well, hopefully not just one time. <laughs> all right brad it's been a real pleasure thank you thank you and we have the power gamers <laughs> that's a really good segue yeah that's a really good segue because holy i believe some of our listeners have the power to ask us some questions do they not they certainly do and we're going to answer them in under the hammer under the hammer Welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we will answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis RPG as it impacts both rules, content creation, and play. 
Um, just a couple of questions this week. So, Huli, would you like to read us our first question? Absolutely. Uh, so, this one came from David Kaufman via email, and he asks, Greeting fellow Smiths. Greetings. Hello. I Greetings. am <laughs> I'm in the process of designing a fantasy setting to introduce several co-workers to the realm of Genesis. I want the setting filled with magic, but not with mages and priests slinging spells willy-nilly. To that end, I'm considering having a single talent for each magic skill modelled after the Templar talent from Terranoth. Uh, Do you more experienced smiths foresee any issues with this, provided the players who are from D&D backgrounds, if they've played RPGs at all, are informed during session zero that the most powerful spellcasters are akin to paladins. Thanks in advance, and I never listen. Oh, wait, wrong podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be a common ending. <laughs> um, man, this is a really intriguing question. Mm. If... if if they come from a D&D background, I think they're going to be frustrated by the fact that they can't access magic to as strong a degree, mm. at least from my experience with players. <laughs> but again, if that's a core conceit of your setting where there there is no – we would call that low magic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where you want to enforce that low magic concept where it really doesn't get more powerful than, you know – D and D paladins, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, if 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 I was asked to design that, David, I would probably take the tact that you are taking now with 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 designing a talent like that for each each kind of type of magic. Um, having said that, though, I would supplement it with some additional talents. Um, I have some similar ones that are actually tier five in my familiar setting, uh, but I wouldn't recommend making it tier five. Um, you know, that maybe maybe a tier three talent that would allow them to unlock full magical capability, because you want to give your players an out um, if they want to go a bit a bit heavier than that. Um, and at that point, even if it's not common in the setting, who cares? They're big damn heroes. That's the point. They get to be the exceptions. Um, but you know, if you're gonna if you're going to show them the glory of magic, be prepared, like many players who are fans of the magic system in this game are, that they're going to become a little addicted to it and want to do it more. Mm. So be prepared for that. Yeah. Look, the, the other thing that, that I think that it is important to take a look at when you're looking at that sort of a talent is that can you take multiple versions of the talent so that you can use different types of, of skills? Um, you know, I guess you can do that with, um, with your, your, your normal Terranoth. Uh, so, you know, I don't think that there would be a major problem with it, but, um, the, the thing that which really sticks out for me with regards to this is that a spell costs two strain and, when uh, the reason why that is is so that you can try to limit the amount of spells that they're actually casting. So what that means is that if you only can do it once per encounter, people are going to be more inclined to either not cast it at all, or they're going to try to do it as a last last ditch effort, 
which is going to mean that they're going to be probably disappointed half the time because they're only going to be casting it once, but it's going to have this huge difficulty and they're never going to um, get the, the spell off in the first place. So what's going to happen is you're going to have people who've spent uh, XP to get these talents, but then they can't end up using them because they're only being able to use them once. If they can yeah. use it openly, what's happening is that they get to play. They get to experiment. Oh, what happens if I do it with a three difficulty? Oh, these are the ramifications. But what, happen, what happens if I just do it as a one difficulty? Um, oh, good. I can handle that. So if I then spend some XP on my skill, that means that I'm going to be able to do two. But if you're only using it once in an encounter, it's not going to happen very often. And people aren't going to get used to that um, that sort of that feel. It's a, it's another reason why I'm not a big fan of massive accelerated play in D and D. Or if uh, if people are coming into um, uh, an existing campaign where people are like sixth and seventh level, and you're suddenly giving them a mage with all of these abilities, they don't they don't know what to do with them. Force powers in in Star Wars is exactly the same thing. You want people to be able to get used to them and be able to play with them so that when it does come to the the big important part, that they can then, they've got the skills to be able to go, okay, I know how to use this properly. Um, so anyway, that's my thoughts on that. No, I really do agree with your suggestions. And, and you bring up a, a, a good point that I think undercuts all of this. And that is, look, David, you need to ask yourself why you're making this decision. If it's for thematic reasons that, look, this is just a low magic setting, then, yeah, this is a solution that might work. But you got to realize that they're probably never going to use magic. Mm-hmm. All right. Because, again, they're not going to it's not worthwhile to put to put to, it's not worthwhile to make uh, to make the dice pool meaningful where you can actually pull something off because they can only do it once an encounter. Mm-hmm. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if it, if it has nothing to do with thematics, if you're making a thematic decision for your setting based on a fear of of the overwhelming nature of magic for new players that you're introducing to this system, then my number one recommendation in that case would be don't limit it. In my experience, having introduced a lot of new players with magic specifically to this system, um, start small by using um, by using uh, pre-made spell cards or a spell list. The idea of, uh, we talked about this on the show before, Huli, mm. having two or three sort of ready-made spells with difficulties defined and maybe one or two additional effects added that are on a, a note card or a secondary sheet that's provided to the player. Like, look, this is here, here's some ready-made spells for you. Now, as you get more comfortable, we can talk about what else you can do because you can do a lot more. But here you go. And for new players, especially learning the system, they're, they're not going to get into heavy magic. They're going to cleave to that spell list that you've given them. So... Consider that as well. Yeah, and I mean, to that end, if uh, if you really want to go down the path of looking for certain specific spells, go to the Foundry. Um, the uh, the Guide to Magic uh, by the character who I can never pronounce because I'm terrible with names, uh, Zerinthix or something like that. Scott's going to hate <laughs> me. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the Guide to Magic, a beginner's guide to Genesis Magic by uh, Scott Zumwalt is one of those products that gives a whole heap of spells that you could give to your players to say, and these are the examples that you could use. So they have a defined process, and then once they're used to that, then you can start to explain 
how those spells got created in the first place. And then they can start to develop their own skills, I guess, in, in using magic within the setting. So, um, yeah, that's just a, that's another way, I guess. And also to promote the foundry, <laughs> which, which is something that we love to do. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Good question. Mm. Next up, we have an email question from Split Light mm. uh, who, asked, who asked the following. Uh, this is a really good crunchy mechanical question. <laughs> um, I'm curious how people interpret the interaction of the durable um, and dead eye talents or other similar crit affecting talents. Um, and by way of explanation, dead eye is a tier four talent that lets you choose within a range which crit you will inflict on your target. Durable reduces crits by 10 per rank. So if somebody with Deadeye hits a target who has three ranks of Durable, how does that work? Is it subtracted from the number chosen? Do they need to choose a higher crit that then reduces to what they want? Um, I got a fight coming up in a fantasy campaign I'm running where I know this is going to be an issue, so I'm trying to prep a little. Thanks, all. Yeah, it's a mechanical question, all right. Um, so uh, he's right in saying that the dead eye and durable are basically uh, as he's mentioned. So with with dead eye, as I said, it's a it's a high tier talent that that lets you choose um, a critical injury within a range when you've rolled uh, for that particular hit. So, for example, if we, uh, if we go to the core rules on page 115, when we're looking at the critical injury uh, result table, if somebody was to roll a 56, which would be an agonizing wound, uh, which the severity, as we talked about earlier, um, when we talked about medicine, um, the severity for that is an average uh, difficulty. So what that means is with the dead eye, you could choose anything from 41 down to... 90 as far as the results because that's all in the same range of severity with an average uh, difficulty. Uh, The same sort of thing would obviously apply to easy, um, hard, and even daunting. Um, So, you know, if there's there's one way you want to kill a character, make sure that you've, you know, you've rolled either a a 126 or, you know, higher. Um, And then you can choose where you want to go. The the interesting thing with durable is that for every rank, because it's a rank talent, for every rank of that, you get to minus 10 to the result of the critical injury result. So the answer to this question is going to be based purely on the process involved of how you adjudicate critical injuries. So what you would do is you make the roll first, and then whatever the roll result is, that's what you apply. So in this case, because of the the durable, um, sorry, yeah, because of durable, what what that means is that when you make the check, that's when you adjust the number to work out what it is that you're going to suffer from. And then when it comes to the dead eye, you then work out which of that selection you're going to choose. Um, so you do durable first and then you apply dead eye where this becomes really quite interesting is when we start looking at, uh, the dwarven ability tough as nails. We also see dwarf, um, tough of nails, uh, tough as nails, um, in the, I think it's the laborer class. 
uh, or the labourer the labourer species um, archetype that we see in the core rules. So once per session, um, the character may spend a story point as an out of turn incidental immediately after suffering a critical injury, and determining the results. So this again talks about the process that technically um, this would be after the uh, the. This would, if I have to get this right, this would be after applying Deadeye. So you know what the critical injury is going to be, and you've determined what the results are, but then you can then reduce that to a one, which is pretty powerful when you're talking about this one ability that you get right from the start. Yes, you have to use it once, you can only use it once per session, and it costs a story point. But you immediately make it a one. So, and it, it beats effectively a tier four talent, which is pretty powerful. So, yeah, that kind of answers the question, I hope. <laughs> and so, I mean, to put that in an example context, mm-hmm. right? Right. I mean, I, I, I've, got a, I've got a sniper with dead eye mm-hmm. hitting a target with three ranks of durable. Right. Um, the sniper crits mm-hmm. and rolls a. 82 okay. okay which which puts them in the average range okay right at that point durable kicks in mm-hmm. um or wait that, that that's a poor example 82 we'll, we'll say they roll a they roll a 50 okay mm-hmm. that puts them in the average range yeah then durable kicks in reduces it by 30 so that bumps it down to a 20 which puts them into the easy range at that point dead eye can say okay i get to choose the crit Within the current range, and that range is now easy. That's correct. So that's that's how it applies. Mm. And then after all that nonsense happens, if you happen to be a dwarf or a laborer, you can be like, you know what? I'm going to use tough as nails. Nope, nope. It's a minor. <laughs> <nick>. <laughs> and you can obviously wait until because that that occurs in, um, in that process. You can wait to see what the result is going to be. So if you've suddenly, you know, it's dropped that down to. Um, you're slowed down. Uh, so, you know, the target can only act during the last um, allied initiative slot on the next turn. That's on. Uh, that's not a big thing. So would you be spending your once a session spend a story point ability on, on something like that? Probably not. Um, but if you're starting to, to, you know, get a horrific injury or temporary disabled um, or probably the, the worst out of all of them, um, which is overpowered, in my opinion, uh, which means that they get to make another attack on exactly the same dice that they used in the previous turn. Um, yeah. that's, if you've got something like that, and that's suddenly coming up, and that's only an average check, you would be going, yeah, I'm turning that into a one, without even thinking about that and spending that story point. So, uh, so yeah. So hopefully that is uh, that has answered the question. Um, I think it has. Um, have you got anything you'd like to add to that, Chris? No, no, it's all good. It's all good. And, and good questions, guys. Thanks, mm. uh, thanks for getting them to us. Mm. Uh, we greatly do appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, but Huli, I'm I'm afraid that this brings us to the end of yet another show. Oh. And sadly, our last episode. Of 2019. It's been a big year, Chris. It's, yes. 
it's been a huge year with the uh, with the release of the Foundry um, and uh, the release of the show. Um, but we'll be back in uh, 2020 with some amazing new content for you, including our special guest episode to pour through yours and our questions about the Explained Player's Guide and the GM screen. But before that, I think we have another episode in early January. Is that right, Chris? Indeed, we will. Mm. Um, as it's something we've been building up to for a long time mm. and quite a few episodes now, yeah. we will be returning to the topic of magic and deep diving into the actual process and recommendations mm. for reskinning the magic system entirely. Mm. Now, that's a discussion that I'm truly looking forward to for a whole heap of reasons. Uh, But not only will we be going through a new set of rules of thumb, uh, taking all that we've learned about the magic system of Genesis and using its parts to build something new, but we're going to actually walk through an entire reskin live on the show. That's, um, wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be a long episode, partner. (laughs) It certainly is. Um, But, you know, after that show, as you mentioned, uh, we'll be welcoming Keith Keppel and Sam Gregor-Stewart back to the show to dive into the expanded player's guide in all of its glory, uh, as well as the GM screen. And uh, we want your questions about the book. Um, So be sure to email us or post them up because merely doing so could win you as we mentioned earlier in the episode, a free copy of the EPG as well as a copy of the GM screen. Oh, that's right. And you guys, of course, can email us at forgegenesis at d20radio.com or you can post your questions up on our Facebook page, on Discord, or in dedicated discussion threads. We've started on both the Genesis RPG community and the official FFG forums. And while you're all sending us those questions, we would love to get any other questions like those that have previously been answered um, from our uh, uh, our listeners uh, about developing your own content for Genesis, uh, being a GM or a player, or general questions about the rules themselves. Uh, once again, feel free to email us at forgegenesis at d20radio.com or you can post it up via social media including Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Reddit, um, a whole heap of other ones that I can't remember right now. Um, I think <laughs> I even started an Instagram one. But anyway, <laughs> I think we're everywhere now, Chris. Um, but you can find us uh, by searching at Forge Genesis. You can also join the even larger discussion in the D20 Radio Facebook group where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. And don't forget, guys, to give us a like or a follow us as well on any of our social media sites. You can also drop us a review on those sites or on your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes and even Spotify. And, of course, you can visit us on our website, uh, not only for uh, the episodes themselves, but also uh, PDFs of the cool content that mm-hmm. we uh, relate on this episode. And that website, of course, is forgegenesis.com. Indeed. Um, Well, that's a wrap for us. Thank you all for listening, and we hope that you will join us next time as we continue to explore this wonderful game we call Genesis, the role-playing game. I'm GM Hooley, may your triumphs be many, and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. 
Thanks again for joining us, and remember, The Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the T20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains property of The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about the Forge Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com. Thank you.